There is one story in that period that I really do like, though. Let me we, guess. Does it involve Monet? <laughs> it does. It sure does. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast, where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is writer and illustrator Terry Bloss, known for a variety of work, but more recently his graphic novel, Hotel Dare, and his work at Marvel on Reptile? Reptile? Is it like a, does, is there like a flourish to it, do you think? <laughs> Reptile, I guess. Reptile, yeah, sure. like rolled Reptile. R. I like a yeah. rolled R. Reptile, which was a miniseries recently about the popular Avengers Academy character who hadn't been used in a while, so it was nice to see him come back. I think he like maybe died in Avengers Arena, but it wasn't clear, right? Was that oh, what happened? The, the, well, no, but everybody was like, didn't he die? <laughs> and I was like... The thing about comics that's great is if it looked like they died, you can write them out of that very, very easily. I also felt it was like, why is that a question for me? He appears in Keenan Black with Spider-Man before my book ever came out. So there ask you Pat go. Liner. <laughs> I did not read King and Black Spider-Man, so I will take your word for it. Nothing personal to that writer. Right. I love that issue. I just have not read a Spider-Man since they got rid of Mary Jane. Ah. I'm strict about that. Yeah. If anything's going to get me to read fucking Spider-Man, it's Zeb Wells because I'm like a Zeb Wells stan. Mm. But I I don't know. That's a bridge that's it's it's going to be deep and treacherous waters for me to cross over that bridge. Like, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will get to you, Terry, in just a second. But first, I just wanted to do some business. I actually had a couple people. This is not even about this show, which is funny. I was on X of Words with Ash Elaine, which is a great show with like 10 to 20 minute episodes that you should listen to. My episode, of course, yeah. is 24 minutes because I can't shut the fuck up. But <laughs> Ash is great and you should listen to that. He's going to be on the show in a couple of months. I'm really excited about that. So anyway, we did an episode on Lourdes Chantel. So actually this is like... She's Hispanic, not Latina, but it is a similar kind of these characters. What's their backstory? Not super clear when white people write it or like white Anglo people. Oh, write we'll it. get there. We'll get there. Yeah. So um, it's appropriate to talk about it now. But I mentioned that Lourdes Chantel was from Madrid, which she is not. She's from Barcelona, which I knew because in the original story, she says, I wish I could see the sun again. Stroll las ramblas at home in Barcelona. Pray a last time at the Sagrada Familia. Like just like referencing all of the tourist traps that you might go to in Barcelona. <laughs> Which I love. That's very Chris Claremont. And not Barcelona, Barcelona, like you well, said. Well, <laughs> I say it that way because I know. Yeah. But she, you know, it's written with the C. So here's, I actually know how this happened. So first of all, in the recent Marauders issue that retold the story and retconned her death, Jerry wrote Emma saying that she was from Madrid. And I actually decided to figure out how this happened. And it's so funny because I was just talking about this. I call it wiki drift. Fans will make a mistake on a wiki for a character who hasn't been seen in a while, and then a writer will reference that wiki. I don't know if this is what Jerry did, but... You're saying Emma? Emma says that Lourdes is from Madrid, and she's supposed oh, to be from Barcelona. Okay. So... I was like, Emma is from no, Madrid? No, <laughs> Emma's from Boston, darling. I was like, hang on. Wait. Emma's from Boston, and she hasn't been there in years, because when she goes back, the accent comes out. Can you imagine if her character talked like that? That'd be so I amazing. know. She's worked really hard to get rid of that. My father, Winston, was a terrible man. <laughs> My dad's family is from Boston. Carol Danvers canonically has a thick Boston accent. It is commented nice. upon when Rogue and Carol switch personalities in the 80s. So I do like to say, Captain Marvel. Mm. But anyway, so I looked at the Marvel wiki 
which is like obviously fan constructed, but it's pretty comprehensive. It's a good fan wiki. And that says that Lourdes is from Madrid. So I haven't gone back to the Ben Robb miniseries. Maybe the mistake was first made there, but either there or on the wiki somewhere that Jerry must have glanced at it said Madrid. Your listeners are going to kill me because when you say Lourdes, I'm like, Madonna's daughter? I don't know who you're talking Lourdes about. Lourdes Ciccone? Right. No, exactly. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know who this is. Who's Lourdes? It's really okay. She has three appearances, four appearances okay. ever at this point. She was a famously fridged character. She was introduced as a backstory element for Sebastian Shaw, and it's like why he's such a prick. Okay. And Jerry retconned that she never died and Emma tricked Shaw to think she had died. Oh, because... I did read this in Mariah. Right. I did read yeah, this in yeah, yeah, Okay, yeah. okay, okay. I know who you're talking about now. Yeah. Marauders is one of my favorite titles right now. And so like it's but I read them all like really quickly. So they blended together. I have also enjoyed Marauders. I am really, really looking forward to it. It was just announced. My client Steve Orlando is going to I love him. I'm so excited. Marauders. People keep messaging me on the account, like, when did you know about and like I first of all (laughs) You're like it's my job. I represent him. I can't talk about that. Yeah. (laughs) But I do want to reiterate, and this has been true from the beginning, because obviously I've been representing Teeny Howard from the start of the podcast. These people are professionals. They're not telling me the plots ahead of time. And even if you did, it's not like you would say anything. That's right, because part of your job. it's part of my job. And do we really want to be like, spoiled? just wait and enjoy the comic? Well, that's how I am. I wouldn't want them to tell me anyway, because I like to read it as it comes out, right? So anyway, just to clarify, because there are sometimes like people are like, ooh, you know these people. I'm like, I do know these people. But generally speaking, if you ask me questions about like my clients who I literally work with, I'm not going to be able to answer those questions. So just, you know. Wait, so I have a question for you about Steve. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I actually had dinner with him yesterday because it's New York Comic Con weekend that we're recording on this Sunday. Mm. Lunch, rather. I had lunch, a late lunch. So it was like one of those nebulous meals where it's like, what is this? With him and Derek Charm, who's also a delight. I was on a panel with Steve somewhat recently and he said something that like really stuck with me. And I told him later on, I was like, I can't get over it because it was so important. We were talking about queer representation in comics. And he was saying like, you know, when I was at DC, I created so many queer characters, mm-hmm. but like it doesn't, it doesn't serve us to have new queer characters if we don't support these stories. Like that's why yes. they're so easily forgotten. They're just like, and I'm learning that too. And especially with this episode that you and I are doing right now, I'm doing this thing called Mexican Marvel Mondays where I'm sketching Mexican Marvel mm-hmm. characters. And I have like a list. They exist. And yet it would be hard for me to list them off the top of my head. Right. Because if, if, if we're not supporting them, if we're not putting them in books with other popular characters for people to like get to know them. And you know, it's really easy to just sort of like, say that they're not represented because then we forget about them. It's also hard because I do think that, and this is something that I'll confess is a problem for me too. If I'm thinking about Latina Marvel characters, I'm not always going to be conscious of like immediately which country they're from because I think that a lot of white people in America just sort of, so I'm like, is La Bandera a Mexican character? I can't, you know, I I don't remember, you know, like that's what- I don't, (laughs) I don't think so, but I would have to look because it's like her name's Spanish. There was a listener who wrote in actually, I forget which episode it was, but we were talking about a Latino character and they wrote in, they were Chilean and they were like, you know, I support all the Latino Marvel characters, but there is no Chilean Marvel character and our cultures are all very different. And I said to him, like, you know, I hope you do get that because there's no reason why everybody shouldn't get something. There's only so many countries. Like, there's no... Uh, uh, (laughs) Right. According to MarvelFandom.com. That's the Marvel Wiki that I was just talking about. uh Uh-huh. La Bandera is from Cuba. Okay. that. Oh, that the free flag of Cuba. Her name's the flag. Yeah. That makes sense. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. When I lived in New York, I was almost exclusively eating Dominican, Puerto Rican, and Cuban food. 
And when I would go to a Cuban's house, they were like, la bandera, which was the name of a plate, like a dish, because they would eat like so often. So I just really, yeah. That makes total sense. But see, this is what I'm saying is like, first of all, I haven't read enough stories with that character in it to remember. Right. Because then she's easy to forget. And why would we know where she's from? Exactly. And there are so many like that. I feel that way. Like you said, like Steve mentioned about queer characters also. I mean, one of the things that I think is most exciting about this new run of Marauders. So first of all, if you haven't seen the solicit, There's going to be an annual in January to introduce the new team, and Steve is the new writer. So cool. The lineup that has been announced so far, with more to come per Steve on Twitter, is Kate Pride, Dakin, Kanon, Bishop, Tempo, and Somnus, the character that Steve and Luciano Vecchio created for the Marvel's Voices Pride issue, is going to be part of the team. So that's exciting. Can I just say that in that Marvel Voices Pride the artist that got to draw Somnus, mm-hmm. Steve's story, is, Cl- is Cl- Claudia Aguirre, who who drew my book, Hotel Dare. Oh, yeah, so, she did. Yeah, so she and I, we speak every day. I call her mi hermana mexicana, my Mexican sister. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I'm just, so, I just, I just loved, I thought she did such a good job with that story. And she made Dakin like sexy to me. I know, (laughs) which is not always how I feel about him. I prefer the man bun look. I'm sorry, but I do. I'm liking that more than the mohawk. And I don't like man buns generally, really. Me, same. But on him, him, it works better. It's better than that mohawk. Well, also, I think what I like with him is it has sort of like a samurai quality to it. Yeah. Like it looks like a traditional top knot rather than like right. a messy rather Brooklyn than, man exactly, bun. Exactly, exactly. And I thought that that was a nice characterizing beat because I think that it's often forgotten that that character is Asian outside of his name. Yeah. You know, it's often just a thing where he's not drawn. That's not taken into consideration usually. Yeah, yeah. and he continues to use... Somewhat controversially to fans sometimes, he continues to use the name that was given to him by people around him in Japan who called him a mongrel because he was mixed race. For the record, my two cents on that controversy, Japanese people and Japanese American people have told me that that is not an actual slur, like in the real world. And so I personally see it as him reclaiming something that was put on him the way that lots of X-Men characters have. Eric the Red named Polaris, Mojo named Psylocke, although Chris Claremont told me at New York Comic Con this week that that's not true. And I was like, well, Chris, that's what it says in the comic. And this was part of our discussion. I had a great time talking to Chris. We talked for about 45 minutes and I felt so bad, but all the people behind us in line were like, no, keep going. It was not on purpose. Like I just, I I had, well, I'm going to go into it on the Patreon. So Subscribe gotcha. to the Patreon and so, here. More go check it out. There's nothing like super juicy. It's just a funny conversation. It's always funny to talk to someone whose work has been so important to you because I was so yeah. nervous. And then like if you say something that kind of sets them off, I was like, oh my God, Chris, the last thing I would want. He's like, no, you're not upsetting me. I just think about this stuff a lot. I know. When I met Valentina, <laughs> I started crying. <laughs> when I met Valentina, I started crying. That's hilarious. Well, you just did a cute drag look to commemorate that I did. historical event. I thought you looked fantastic. Thank you. I'm yeah, sorry that it, I say that historical event because I'm an idiot, but like I can't no, 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 it's Spanish. See, that's a good transition for me to be like, well, see what I yeah, did. Yeah, now was. I was going to say, why don't you educate the children <laughs> right. right now? Yeah, I turned 41 and I didn't get to really celebrate my 40th birthday. Shocked me, by the way, because he does not look a day older than me. So I was like, <laughs> Well, Damn. you can see what I look like on latinxspaces.com because there there's a whole go. article there if you want to read more about it. But essentially what it boiled down to was the world was on fire when I turned 40. Portland had the worst air quality in the world. So I like didn't really get to celebrate very big for my 40th birthday. And recently, a few years ago, I went to Mexico City. I learned about this historical event called The Dance of the 41, El Baile de los 41. There's a Netflix movie about it that you can watch called The Dance of the 41. And 
this event predates Stonewall by like 70 years. Mm -hmm. But like in the early 1900s, there was a private party, a private, at a private residence, excuse me, that 41 like queer men, or we don't know, maybe some of them are trans women. The boundaries of those identities were a little more fluid back then. Right. And the police raided this house and arrested all these men and forced them to do community service and drag so they could be mocked in public. And half of them were also forced to join the military. It was something that I wanted to do in terms of like, I wanted to just get dressed up in drag in my version of like, as if I were going to this party and bring light to this subject and to this event so more people could understand and see, you know, what happened there. But yeah, if you want to see all the pictures of me in like my circlet braid wig and a dress that I altered heavily for like four months, (laughs) then (laughs) check it out. I loved it. I thought it was great. And I think that it's really important now at this point, I think Stonewall as an event has been frozen in the lexicon as like, this is the gay event. And the fact is that there are lots of them in many, many cultures that I think are important. And Stonewall definitely, because of all the attention that's on American politics generally, was a really important, critical, ripple-effect moment. But I think that it's important to acknowledge things that were happening in Europe, things that were happening in Asia, Africa, South America, everywhere. Well, right. And we don't learn like Mexican history in American schools, right? We don't learn that. And we certainly don't learn queer history either. Not at all. I bet Stonewall's in textbooks now, though, is what I'm saying. You know what I mean? Uh, Like one sentence or something. Sure. The Mexican history that I learned in public school was the history of the Aztecs, not any modern colonial and post-colonial Mexican history, right? Because that's not flattering to anybody to get into it. The reason this event was that was so controversial and important was because it was the first time that gay people were even spoken about in the Mexican media. And the reason that it was written about in newspapers and whatnot is because so many of the men who were there were of a higher class, like money-wise. And the rumor is that 42 men were actually at this party, but the president of Mexico at the time, when he was brought the arrest record, said, I only see 41 here because one of them was his son-in-law. Oh, one of them was his son in- was his yeah. son-in-law. Well, that'll happen. And, yeah. So I mean, you look at mm-hmm. the history of I mean, honestly, one of the reasons that Oscar Wilde ended up in trouble was because some of the people he was in the same circle with were in the aristocracy, right? I mean, and Mm -hmm. people are keeping eyes on those people. Now, there were other reasons he got in trouble. We don't have to get into it. I'm just saying that, you know, to go to just the gay element. Right. But anyway, so yeah, just on the Lourdes Chantel bit, I'd just like to thank three people who all commented. Omar Burke, who wrote into the email account, was very funny. He was like, shocked that I know any X-Men lore that you've made a mistake on, which is the response I get a lot. And here's the thing. There are lots of gaps in my knowledge. I'm just very good at... Retaining, retaining. Yeah, yeah, and like, I guess coming across, like, I know everything. But particularly the Cable episode, like, thank God there was the season break because I was lost. I made the joke that, like, I'm too gay to understand time travel, but truly like I just, the number of chronological things I had forgotten in that character, <laughs> it was, it, I, I truly <laughs> just destroyed my mind. And last week's episode on Candy Southern, I had read the new Defenders stories specifically because I love Candy, but I had never read some of the Avengers stuff that she had appeared in. So like that was fun to go back and do. So I'm always learning on this podcast. Anyway, thank you, Omar. And thank you to two people who actually live in Spain, Chris Cullen, who lives in Madrid, and Luca Nieto Garay, who I think lives in the Basque country, actually. Oh, wow. So it's like between Spain and France, right? I don't know. I I believe so. I don't know. Not an expert on the Basque country. However, it's just cool to me that people from all over the world are listening to this podcast. Yeah. Apparently. Like yeah. to the point where I can make a mistake about Spanish geography when guest appearing on a different podcast and, and get helpful can, emails yeah. to my podcast account. 
I enjoy that very much. Nice. So that was all the business for today. Thank you for humoring me for the four and a half hour episode on Candy Southern last week, which is <laughs> the most insane thing I've ever done in my life. But you know what? Sarah and I were just vibing and we were like, we're just going to keep going. Yeah. We're going to keep going. We're going to keep going. And by the time we were finished, we had been recording for five hours and 20 minutes. Oh my God. Wow. So I did, and I, you're not missing anything. Like someone joked on Twitter, like release the candy cut. And I'm like, no, no, no. Like, <laughs> <laughs> the candy cut. I know. I cut exclusively like moments of dead air because my internet kept dropping out in my Airbnb. And then we both had taken a lot of screenshots on Marvel Unlimited to talk about. Unfortunately, I had not thought to order mine chronologically. So I would be uh, like, all right, hold on and spend like two yeah. minutes like paging through a million pages that I had screencast. The digital version of like shuffling through your cards. Exactly. Cards. And I was like, and I can only do one at a time here. So give me a sec. But Sarah was great. I really loved that episode. People are telling me that like a lot of people who'd never heard of that character now really care about justice for her. And that's all I wanted that's to great. do. So I'm glad to yeah. hear it. You can purchase the design Forever and Ever by Valentine Smith on the Cerebro store now. It's perhaps the first Candy Southern merchandise ever to exist, and I'm nice. thrilled to report that 27 people have already ordered one. Perhaps more people than had ever thought about Candy Southern in the last 20 years before last week, so I'm thrilled. This episode is about a character that, contra to Candy, I have never thought about a ton. Gen X was never my book. See, and it was my book. <laughs> I grew up more reading the 80s stuff in back issues. So, like, my student class is really the New Mutants. Gen X was coming out when I was a kid, but I wasn't yeah. reading it as regularly. And when I did read Gen X, which I did on occasion, and I've since read all of it, Monet was my favorite in that book for all the mess that her arc is over the course of that book. <laughs> I mean, she and Skin have a really great moment at that dance, which we'll get to. That's one of my favorite yeah. bits in Gen X. And that's who we're here to talk about is Angelo Espinosa, Skin. What is your take on the name Angelo? I had someone say to me that, like, Angelo is Italian and they meant on hell, but they put an O on it. <laughs> I mean, I can totally see that. Um, like, that's what the person's theory was. And I was like, that tracks to me. Yeah, I think that also tracks, but I think that you mentioned it a little bit earlier about like, is was anyone consulted? <laughs> like, you know, like, or was he written by, you know, someone who may just not have known? Well, and that's the thing is in Phalanx Covenant, when he's introduced, all the other like Monet and Husk and Everett all get full names. He's just Angelo. Yeah. And it's not until Gen X that I think you even get that he's Latino the at Espinosa, all. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because he's one of those mutants that has a weird skin color. So you're not, you know, like you have to be told, right? Right. That said, like I know Labdell and Bachelo had, like, I believe pre-designed the characters besides Paige for Gen X. And like, I think they also did like Paige's powers and stuff. They also designed, but like she was sort of a pre-existing character. Yeah. So I bet they had the name. It's just not said in Phalanx Covenant at any point. So in my head, it was always Angelo until it occurred to me a couple of years ago, like, wait, it should be Spanish, right? And his mother does call him Mianhel. Right. So that's, you know. I think it's one of those things where like. They're in LA. Maybe it's anglicized. Right. And characters are going to call like, you know, I don't think Jubilee is calling him Angelo. No, you know, she like, probably calls him Angelo. Oh, Angelo, right? Yeah. But so it's one of those things where like my, my diva was Shakira. Mm -hmm. uh, and somebody asked her once like in an interview, how do you pronounce your name? And she's like, well, are we doing an interview in Spanish or English? Or Arabic because Shakira Mubarak right? is not either of those languages. Because <laughs> exactly. her father is Lebanese. I Lebanese. Mm -hmm. I also love Shakira. <laughs> oh, she was my everything. I met her when I was living in New York City. She kissed me on the cheek. It was the only time that's ever happened. And I started hyperventilating when a woman kissed me. Oh my God. I'm also always into like a Lebanese celebrity moment because I feel like 
despite all of the modern strife that we don't have to get into, I always, yeah. at least in America, I always feel like Jews and Lebanese people are sort of like cousins. Mm-hmm. When Tony Shalhoub or Kathy Najimi plays Jewish on a TV show, I'm like, that's appropriate. Like, like yes, you know, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Like, if Oded Fair is going to play that guy in The Mummy Returns over and over, then Turnabout is fair play as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and I think she just said like, you know, if we're doing an interview in English, you know, sure, Shakira. But if we're doing an interview in Spanish, you're probably going to say Shakira. Shakira, so, like, right. And it would be very different in Arabic. So Right. So I think that that's, you know, whichever whichever way you want to say his name, same with me. You can say Blas, you can say Blas. Like, it just depends on what you want to... Oh, thank God you said it, because I was worried I had said it wrong. Either way, it's totally fine. I did two hours with Fabian Nicieza before he corrected me on how to pronounce his name. I was like, Mr. Nicieza. And he's like, and he's, he's the thing is, he said, you got closer than anybody does, really. So it was fine. You know? <laughs> and I wasn't going to correct you. But when he said he was like, Fabian Nicieza.com, I was like, oh, shit, I've been saying it wrong for two hours. Oh, wow. Anyway, what are you going to do? Yeah, so I think however you say his name, it's fine. And, and story-wise, depends on who's saying it. Well, yeah, I would say, like, Paige definitely is not saying on the uh, No. Actually, she might try, because she's, like, she's always trying to not come across as uneducated, right? So she, like, overcompensates. Yeah. But Jubilee's calling him Angelo, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. They're just, like, L.A. kids together. Street kids in L.A., actually. They have a lot in common, mm-hmm. which we'll get to, I'm sure. We will also get there. <laughs> oh, but to go back, actually, before we, before we dig deeper, I, the reason this character was not one that I ever really dug deep into, I think is because, and I've mentioned this, I have a lot of issues sometimes with the characters who have really like body horror oriented powers. They kind of freak me out. That's another reason I think that Gen X was not my book because so many of the characters in that book specifically intentionally have powers like that. Because one of them looks like he's melting and another one looks like a red Edward Scissorhands teenage girl. (laughs) Yeah, and like, that's the thing is like, I think penance is cool, but when they describe it and they're like, her skin is pulled so tight that the muscles have atrophied into diamond i'm like i hate this yeah. actually i don't yeah. really talk about it well how do you feel about chamber see for some reason it never really bothered me with chamber i think because it was so fantastical that it just didn't feel like with skin i just am always thinking about the extra skin that hangs off his body and actually like here's what it is because i talked about this in the husk episode because i i had like a therapy breakthrough moment i think it's just because i had a weight problem my whole life i have binge eating disorder my weight fluctuates enormously and that's what i mean by problem whatever size you are if you're healthy that's great but like if your weight is fluctuating heavily that's really bad for your organs and stuff so it was always a bit of a problem for me and i ended up having weight loss surgery to repair it and yada 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 i don't want to get into all of that but the sensation of like your skin hanging in ways that you don't like they can't control yeah and all of the skin stuff with husk like i just found that stuff specifically distressing i think because of my yeah. own like body dysmorphic problems so maybe not the book for you to read when you were a teenager exactly <laughs> i think it was just not you know yeah. like rogue going like i can't touch nobody but i'm so horny like that was a much better i see i talked about i talked about that exact thing with angelique crochet on the marvel voices podcast uh love angelique another client of mine actually yes. oh she's so amazing and like I was telling her, like, you know, Rogue was the character that I identified with in the X-Men because of that reason. Because she wanted to touch the boys, but she couldn't because it would kill them. exactly. Right? Which is, like, what we were taught, essentially. Right. She'd never thought of it that way. And I was like, look, when you grew up in a super religious household and you're gay and you feel like if you do that, there's the... There's there's going to be really dramatic, lethal potential repercussions. repercussions. Yes, exactly. No, I mean, that's one of the many... I mean, part of why I talked to Chris yesterday was because, like, I really wanted to thank him for the way that the queer sensibility of those books 
however much he intended it, we know he intended some of it, but other stuff I think was just naturally, you know, when Annie Ascenti was on this podcast, she talked about how they were in the nightlife in lower Manhattan. And I mean, that was their world and their friends were gay and trans and it wasn't, you know, strange to them. Yeah. So that's going to work its way into the narrative. And I felt really seen by the Claremont X-Men when I was a kid. And Rogue is a big part of that. It's, it's an incredible metaphor for like nascent teen sexuality and the fear of puberty and all of that. Absolutely. There's a reason. I mean, I don't love the Fox X-Men movies, but there's a reason that it makes complete sense to have her be that viewpoint character who's experiencing the trauma of mutation because yeah. it's such an apt metaphor. Anyway, with all that business out of the way, we've only been recording for a half an hour. We're making good time. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> so... I'd love, Terry, to talk a bit about you, your origin story with the X-Men. I reached out to you for this episode because Cerebro Discord moderator Luis Lopez, also a gay Mexican king, sent me this interview that you had done because Luis and I had talked about maybe doing Scan when Luis was on the show. And then he sent me this interview where you said that this character had been really important to you because it was like the first Mexican character that you saw in a Marvel comic. Right. So I'd love to hear generally about your history with the X-Men and then will naturally move into why this character was someone you wanted to talk about. Sure. Yeah. I discovered the X-Men like a lot of other kids in the 90s through the Fox animated series. And that really led me to want to know more about those characters, which is how I started reading superhero comics. Luckily, a comic shop had opened up not far from my house when I was a teenager. <laughs> so I sought out all those books and I just read a ton of X-Men and I couldn't get enough of it. So much so that I applied for a job at the movie theater next to that comic shop so that I could literally go there on my breaks and buy comics. <laughs> but I loved X-Men, you know, I totally felt the metaphor, just like a lot of other queer kids. It really hit me hard when like, I think I believe in 94, Generation X came out and it was this book about teenagers because we're told that the X-Men, you know, when they debut, that they're teenagers like Jean Grey and mm -hmm. Iceman and Cyclops, like at the very beginning. But when you watch the Fox animated series and you're reading the comics from the 90s, they're not, those characters aren't teenagers. They're like full-blown adults by that point. So then to introduce a book about teens was so interesting to me. And, you know, this was just a couple of years before I would imprint so heavily on Buffy the Vampire Slayer that it's disgusting. Which owes a great debt to the X-Men by Whedon's admission. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I felt like with the X-Men, I had to search for ones that felt like me as opposed to seeing myself represented. So we, like in the way we just talk about Rogue, mm -hmm. you know, I was like, oh, okay, I kind of understand this. But then when Generation X, I, I remember I saw in like a wizard magazine that this comic was coming, that it was on its way. And one of the characters was, ha you know, I assumed Mexican, we can get there, we'll get there. Mm -hmm. And um, had a Hispanic name. And I was like, wait a minute, what? Like this, it was the first time that I felt like, oh, there's a, there's a character who's a teenager like me right now. And who's also either Hispanic or Latinx or Latina. And I could read a comic about him. That's crazy. So I, I remember buying Generation X number one, reading it, collecting those issues. I collected it steadily up until I think like issue 25 or something. Um, and then sort of started dropping off around that time. But I've always loved those characters. And I really liked the feel of that book in the Monet episode. Sorry, because I've listened to it so many times. No, that's fine. I'm listen. That episode is one of the longest episodes of this podcast. And I'm thrilled <laughs> that you've listened to it multiple times. That's very, very flattering. I have because, and then I have questions for you that we can get to another time because sure, of sure, sure. stuff that I really want to know. But 
you guys mentioned a lot about how that comic felt different, how it felt sort of like those Vertigo books and like the Bachalo, there's another Bachalo book called The Witching Hour. And mm-hmm. I collected those and have those on my shelf. And so I love seeing that artwork. Teeny said that, yeah, that she had already enjoyed The Witching Hour. Yeah, I've got all three volumes on my shelf right there. Anyway, so I love seeing his artwork then portraying the X-Men and the X-Men, the teenagers. It was the first time that I really encountered any kind of story with Emma Frost. And so that's sort of my introduction to her that way too. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I just really liked the comic. And as I read through sort of the storyline, I don't feel like I related to Skin in many ways. There are a few that I did, but it was a time when I was like, well, I have to take any kind of representation that I can get, right? You know, he wears a lot of, a lot of plaid. He has that (laughs) sort of like, I don't know what you want to call it, but when someone writes a Latinx character and they will say something in English or in Spanish and then say the same thing in English right after that, people don't talk that way. Right. And he had a lot of like, like, you know, like, um, like there's a, the young of the, no, the young justice cartoon, the blue beetle in that mm-hmm. every five seconds. I love that character. Every five seconds, he's like, essay this and that. And I'm like, come on, like ugh, maybe one or two, we don't need it like all the time. <laughs> and so, you know, skin was a little bit like that, but I assumed he was Mexican, which is right. Disputed. Well, he, I think he is, isn't he? So, so, okay, here's a story. Because maybe they've just never said, but I assume because he's from L.A. and So that's what I assumed, right? right. He, so here's, here's, here's a little story. And that's not to suggest that every Latina person sure. in L.A. is Mexican. It's just no, but... All the ones I know are. You know what I mean? Like, there's a huge population there. I would say that there are more Mexicans in the Los Angeles area than other... Anywhere else in the U.S. besides, like, Texas and the Southwest, right? Right. right. So, um... Like I mentioned, I've been doing those Mexican Marvel Mondays where I just sketch Mexican Marvel characters and post them. And I did a sketch of skin and put it up. And someone commented on my Instagram, like, I hate to tell you this, but he's Puerto Rican. And I was like, okay, um, Um... sure, great. And like, I was like, and I was like, you didn't, oh no, I hate to break it to you, but whatever. And I was like, well, you didn't break anything to me. He's Mexican. Right. And then they sent me a screen cap of a panel from one of the issues and i believe uh, see i took notes because i knew i was not i love <laughs> a remember. notes moment i love notes but yeah apparently in issue like 66 of generation x he's fighting someone called warden coffin i don't know who this character is this issue was i don't think written by it. warren ellis it's also mentioned that maybe warren ellis came up with the storyline and brian wood wrote it it's, I'm not the, it's an sure. ellis wood collaboration it, yeah and this character warden coffin says how charming a mexican mutant why should i come with you and his response is because you're the bad guy and as far as you're concerned i'm a charming mexican mutant 5-0 i don't know what that means 5-0 whatever 5-0 means a cop right sure so he's mexican i guess because he says you know well, he doesn't say he's Mexican, but he says, as far as you're concerned, I'm a charming Mexican mutant. And this guy calls him Mexican. Now, in another issue, and it's the issue where Chamber and Skin are like on a road trip. And that road trip ends with Howard the Duck picking them up in, right? In like a truck. <laughs> yeah. As they're walking away, Jonathan, I don't remember how you say his like nickname, whatever. Jono. Jono says, like, who's going to come pick us up or whatever? And Skin's response is, what self-respecting truck driver isn't going to pull over for a half-blown-away leather-clad Englishman, his faithful Puerto Rican sidekick, and six extra feet of skin? Hmm. So this person and I 
had an exchange where where they were like, when I sent them like the panel where he says that he's Mexican and they said what you just mentioned a few minutes ago about like, well, that kind of sucks because like Puerto Rican heroes are few and far between. Maybe we should ask the writer and see what they say. And I was like, how about we don't ask the writer? Also, I feel like there are more Puerto Rican heroes than most other kinds of, not to, not to make it a competition, but because most of the Marvel comics are set in New York, I feel like most of the Latino superheroes I can think of are Puerto Rican. Right now you have Miles Morales and America Chavez. Yeah, but even in the X-Men, Cecilia Reyes. Right. But what I said to him was, I was like, why don't we not ask the writer and why can't skin just be both yeah well that's the other thing maybe his dad is puerto rican his mother's mexican literally luis lopez who was on this very show is both mexican primarily and also a little puerto rican so like that happens like anya corazon the spider girl like she's puerto rican and mexican yeah because listen if you speak the same language and you're in a country i mean puerto rico is part of america but you get what i mean if you're suddenly in a context where everybody's speaking english you might feel more comfortable if your first language is spanish speaking to somebody else whose first language is spanish it would be very natural totally so for me now in my head He's both. And I think it's fine. Listen, a lot of Jews are Sephardic and Ashkenazi or Ashkenazi and Mizrahi or or Sephardic and Mizrahi. Any number of combinations, because, again, it's a small community that looked for each other. And even though those are separate communities on some levels, on a core overarching level, it was seen as the same community. So you would get intermarriage because there was nothing seen as inappropriate about that necessarily, unless you were like super intense about the sectarian differences there. But in America, I don't think it was like a, you know, that much of a thing. Right. I'm Irish also. That's like a big part of my heritage. And a lot of Irish people, especially in America, are Scottish and Irish because, you know, that's going to happen with immigrant communities from the same area of the world. Well, it was so interesting to me, like, you know, telling you that I didn't feel like I super related to his character in a few ways. Yes. But this idea now in my head that he is Puerto Rican and Mexican now does make me feel closer to this character because I am you know, like my dad's from Idaho, mm-hmm. my mom's from Mexico, and I am a mixed race. Yeah, your dad is like generally white. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and my mom is, my mom's <laughs> DNA results say 85% Native American. <laughs> so she's like straight up descended from Aztec people, like right down the line. That's very cool. Yeah. And I love that about me. And I struggled a long time growing up with saying like that I was half and half. Mm-hmm. And it was only after living in New York that I started saying that I am both because that felt more powerful to me than like segmenting myself out into the half this and half that and whatever. It's okay to say I am both of these things. Right. So someone said, I just heard this recently and maybe it was even on your podcast, but someone said, if you are even just a little bit Latinx, you are Latinx enough. Mm-hmm. It's not a thing to say, well, like, you know, I'm a half Latino, so I don't know. And I don't know if I can claim that like you're Latino. It's fine. Like, <laughs> As I recall, I was talking to Fabian Niciesa, and he's Argentinian, but his family is 100% Spanish. So he was saying he identifies as tan. That's so funny because I identify as taupe. (laughs) (laughs) Like he doesn't think of himself as a person of color because his ancestors are European, but he had immigrated Mm -hmm. from South America. And so the attitude was a certain way and yada, 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 yada. Yeah. Uh, You know, actually, I think the real test case on that is like the funniest And it's funny in part because she is so embarrassed about it. But Anya Taylor-Joy keeps getting reported in the news as like an actress of color because she's also Argentinian. But like her parents, I believe, are Scottish, like very like not like not even Iberian. Right. And this is like a great conversation, I think, to have. Yeah. And she's she's said she's like, I do identify as Latina because I am Latina. She's like, but I am white and I never go out for Latina roles because I know 
that a casting director would choose me because I am technically Latina, I am fluent in Spanish, but I'm like a white blonde woman and I don't want to take that part that other people might not be able to get a lot of the parts I can get. Sure. First of all, like what a self-aware queen. She's very young. So like that's, you know, I was like impressed with that answer. But it's just funny because like, like when she won the Emmy, it was like the first woman of color to win this award since such and such year. And she was just like, please, no, 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 no. She's like, oh, yeah. It was so funny. All of her fans on Twitter were like, don't do this to her. She did not ask you to do that. <laughs> like, right. now she's going to get dragged all over Twitter. But see, that's what I think a lot of people don't understand, especially Americans, is that Latinx isn't a race. It's, it's a culture. Ethnicity. Or many you know, cultures, it, honestly. Right. Yeah. So that means that there are Black, white, Native, mixed people from whatever country, you know, like from Mexico. It's a very white American understanding of race. Lupita Nyong'o considers herself Mexican. Right, because she is, because she was born in Mexico. That's why they named her Lupita. But that has nothing to do with her skin color. (laughs) Right. Right, you know? Or her ethnic heritage. Exactly. her parents were 100% Kenyan. It's just that, or like, I don't know. Absolutely. I I haven't seen their 23andMe. I'm just saying their parents (laughs) were from Kenya. (laughs) Right. They would just happen to be living in Mexico at the time. You know, and someone once when I, because I think, I think if you are familiar with me, what you likely have seen is my short educational comics that I did about the terms Latino and Hispanic or Latinx. Mm-hmm. Do you prefer Latinx or Latine? I've been saying Latine because someone suggested, just because I have felt like when I say Latinx out loud, I sound, especially as like a white guy being like, the Latinx people, I just feel like I sound dumb. No, sure. I use both, but I think that because right now most people recognize Latinx as like sure. more, more than Latine. Right. And it's easier, like I said, we were talking about speaking Spanish versus speaking English. Mm-hmm. If, I'm, if I'm talking in Spanish, then I will say Latine helps you speak the language because the x is not going to be like a natural sound to put in the middle of that sentence and that's so many people's problem with it and i'm like fine if you have a problem if you say your problem is language then just use the e and then they're like and then they oop well right because then it's like oh that was not really my problem right and then they're like tradition and then i'm like oh tradition okay well your ancestors definitely weren't a catholic and they didn't speak spanish either so tradition like let's you know come on let's talk about huitzotopochtli or something right i want to get really into tradition well hey i love hummingbird (laughs) so if you want to talk about hummingbird and her powers and how she has those powers great but i'm not familiar with that character so that character's name is maria araceli tenalba and she is mexican but her storyline is involved with scarlet spider i guess who okay. is a clo- is a clone of Peter yeah, but he's about to be zeb wells spider-man so that's that's great yeah and so he apparently saved some people from like a truck that was heading into the states from mexico and these people were being trafficked into the states for who knows what some bad coyote situation right so she wakes up in the hospital and doesn't know who she is Mm -hmm. and just knows that she's from like mexico and her code name is hummingbird and she has like very strange powers that are hard to describe but she then realizes that she has like the powers of an Aztec god. Mm. And there's not much that's done with her. And and when she doesn't know who she is, that's my Marvel pitch is like, how is that not a miniseries? Her going back to Mexico to discover and find out who she is and where she got these powers. And, you know, you know, who that reminds me of is Megan, the X-Men character, who's similarly mm. like her whole deal is like she's Romanishal, but she's born with these powers that are very reflective of like fairy lore in the UK. Exactly. And then she loses her family because of a reality warp. So there's a whole arc in the Davis run in Excalibur where Rachel takes Megan to like travel Europe and try and find 
right. her Romanishal family had originally come from so that maybe she can learn more about her heritage or whatever. And as the years have gone by, it's also become clear that Megan also has genuine fairy heritage. And so like her parents mm. weren't wrong to think that she was right. a fairy child. She was also their child, right? Like it's, it's right. some... It's some complicated thing that will That's maybe great. be teased out someday. But lately, when she's been in other worlds, she's been finding her sort of like fae power. Like she's been, she's a shapeshifter naturally, but she's been sort of growing little fairy wings like to flit around and like, enjoy <laughs> yeah. herself. I think that that is such a rich vein for a story is like, who is this person? And what is, particularly, I think, for a lot of diaspora readers, generally of any diaspora, a thing that is really useful is a character who has been disconnected somewhat like against their will from their heritage who then yeah. discovers it. Right. It's, there's room there for a lot of So story. they should let you do that mini, in my opinion. I, <laughs> me too. I think that'd be great. Yeah. Actually, so this is what's funny. And I, I will get back to Latinx Latina and my work and why I was talking about that. But I was actually researching and reading up on Hummingbird because I thought maybe one day when I'm 80, like right. Marvel will let me write a series about this character. And that's when my agent emailed me with like, hey. Marvel's interested, yeah. Right, and, and I was like, sure, cool. Hummingbird can step aside for a second and I'll, I'll deal with the dinosaur. <laughs> Going back to your Latinx, Latina thing, I, if we're just talking in English, usually use Latinx. And when I'm writing, we'll use Latinx mostly. Just because it's the more common term in English. Yeah, but if we all start, it's just, you know, it's just a letter. If we all start using the E more, I'll use that. That's great. And I think the point is, Whatever I can use to make someone else feel included, included, yeah, comfortable. That is not the most basic thing we can do. Is I mean, that's why I tried to adjust my own language. Sure. What I was saying about those like mini comics that I did is that after I did one, somebody came for me and was like, "You're a fake white Mexican. You don't know what you're talking about." Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, "I was like, why do I have to explain to you, another Mexican, that there are white Mexicans? Have you never seen a telenovela?" Right. Like <laughs> almost everybody on one of those is going to be the representation on Mexican television for native indigenous people is atrocious. And so mostly it's like European looking white. Well, I remember there was a whole controversy because a bunch of white or at least like paler Mexican actresses were caught like having a group chat about. Are you going to talk about Yalitza Aparicio? About Yalitza Aparicio. Yeah. Framed on my wall right there. <laughs> <laughs> because that was the first time an indigenous native woman from Mexico was on the cover of Vogue Mexico. That's crazy. That's a good example. And the reason that a lot of people, I spoke with a, film, a filmmaker friend of mine in Mexico, his name's Chucho Quintero. And he told me, he's like, the reason that like, it wasn't such a big deal here in Mexico is because the representation of native indigenous people has been in film in Mexico mm -hmm. has, has been more seen than in television. And it's also a film that's a really good example. Roma is the movie I'm talking yeah. about. Where like, this is a native indigenous Mexican woman who is working in the household of a rich She's white. She's a housekeeper, right. You know, both of these women are Mexican. One of them is white and rich and the other one is not. Right. And so, you know, that's basically what I'm getting at. Is no, the, and like, I think that makes total sense. You know? Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> well, I think right now, because here's the thing with Skin, this character, unfortunately, does not have that lengthy a publication history. He right. has appeared almost 10 Zaladins, so he's doing, you know, not too terrible for himself, but the fact of the matter is shortly after Gen X ended, he got killed off in the Chuck Austin Uncanny run, mm -hmm. and then he was dead until Krakoa, so there's a big gap there from, like, 2003 to 2019. Right. So, I don't want to get too much into him before we pause for the Cerebro character file on Angelo or Angelo, choose your own adventure, Espinoza, 
I will give you his full publication history, starting with the Phalanx Covenant and ending with his recent cameo on Krakoa when Sync was elected to the Krakoan X-Men team. And then we will come back for more with Terry Blass. We will talk about his favorite skin stories, and then we will answer questions from listeners like you. And then I'll give Terry a chance to talk a little bit about his own work as a comics creator and just a writer generally. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Hey, everybody. We're doing things a little differently today because I'm excited as Connor Goldsmith, your host, to tell you about the podcast's extraordinary new sponsor, Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is an incredible mobile game, every comic fan's dream. In this mobile squad RPG, you can assemble a team of your favorite superheroes and supervillains, like Dr. Lorna Dane and the iconic Madeline Jennifer Pryor, to save the universe from cosmic threats like Apocalypse and Doctor Doom. Power up your favorite Marvel characters to complete missions, unlock special gear and other resources, and battle other Marvel fans in PvP modes like Alliance War in the real-time arena. Right now, Marvel Strike Force is celebrating their six-year anniversary with a special Deadpool event, and you can sign up using my unique link available right now in the description of every episode. You'll get free stuff in the game just for signing up through this promotion, with weekly bonuses and events all through this anniversary storyline. Log in every day to get special skins, rewards, and the brand new characters being released to celebrate six years of Marvel Strike Force. This is the game's most generous event to date, and I, for one, can't wait to see all the goodies I can unlock. This promo code works for every new user. Please follow the unique link in this episode description to download Marvel Strike Force so they'll know I sent you. Use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Have a blast with this immersive Marvel experience. Thanks to Marvel Entertainment and the team at Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. We now return you to the show. X-Men, X-Men. Angelo Espinoza, a.k.a. Skin, was a regular cast member of the 90s title Generation X. A moody teen fleeing from the life he'd once led in the mean streets of Los Angeles, Angelo had no interest in becoming a superhero, merely hoping to learn to control his disfiguring visible mutation. The least developed of the core Gen X team, he was unceremoniously killed off after that book's cancellation in the Chuck Austin run on Uncanny X-Men, and has only returned recently in the age of Krakoa. Angelo debuts in the 1994 franchise-wide event Phalanx Covenant, written over Uncanny X-Men and the adjectiveless X-Men title by Scott Lobdell and Fabian Niciesa, respectively, and drawn by Joe Maggerera and Andy Kubert. He first appears in a lobdell Majerera issue as one of four mutant teenagers kidnapped by the techno-organic race called the Phalanx, alongside Paige Guthrie, a.k.a. Husk, Monet Sanquois, a.k.a. M, and Clarice Ferguson, a.k.a. Blink. Angelo is not given a last name in this initial story. While the other teens are in a bit of a panic, Angelo is a sullen, cool character who doesn't cause much of a fuss. His mutation, six feet of malleable extra skin, is not especially useful in combat and marks him visually as a mutant because of his unnatural gray coloring. When Banshee, Emma Frost, and the X-Men's prisoner Sabretooth come to rescue the kids, accompanied by students Jubilee and the newly recruited Everett Thomas, a.k.a. Sink, Clarice ultimately uses her blinking power to save them all from the Phalanx Harvester, sacrificing her own life in the process. The surviving teenagers become the stars of the new book Generation X by Scott Lobdell and Chris Bocciolo, where Angelo is given the last name Espinosa and takes the codename Skin. Forming a new class of Xavier School students under the tutelage of Banshee and Emma Frost at the Massachusetts Academy, they're joined by two other members as the title begins, Jonathan Starsmore, who takes the codename Chamber, and the mysterious mute creature Penance. Angelo initially resists joining Generation X, preferring a life of isolation as he feels he's an unsightly freak. Hank McCoy, also a visible mutant, convinces him to enroll, but Angelo insists he still has no interest in becoming one of the X-Men. 
He only wants to learn to control his mutation and live a normal life. Despite himself, he bonds with his teammates, especially Husk, who has a skin-related mutation of her own, and is able to understand Angelo's afraid his mutant skin will rip or tear in battle. Early in this book's run, in issue 5, Angelo runs into an old acquaintance from L.A. during a trip to New York City. It's implied that he was involved in gang activity, and we learn that he's believed dead back in Los Angeles. Angelo threatens to kill the other man if he reveals to anyone that Angelo has survived. In particular, Angelo is hiding from someone named Torre. Soon after this, the young mutants Artie Maddox and Leech also come to live at the Massachusetts Academy, and Angelo puts on a stern front, protesting he doesn't like children. Despite this, he clearly takes a shine to the boys, and he and Sink build them a treehouse. As Gen X's adventures continue, Angelo gets better at controlling his malleable form, both retracting his skin into a more normal appearance and altering the melanin in his skin to assume a more human skin tone. But maintaining these transformations begins to give him debilitating migraines, so he gives it up. His return to visibly mutated status means he's left back at the Academy when the team takes on a covert mission from a Generation X 15 to 17, along with the similarly obvious Chamber and Penance. While alone and unable to reach Emma or Banshee, he decides to go to the X-Men for help when the rise of Onslaught, don't worry about it, causes dangerous fluctuations in Chamber's psychic power. They're stopped on the way to Westchester by the anti-mutant bounty hunter, the Executioner, who accuses Skin of murdering Angelo Espinosa and stealing his identity. Angelo has been using his own legal documents despite being legally declared dead, see, so the Executioner assumes an evil mutant has murdered this teenager and stolen his life. Angelo cleverly realizes he can hide Chamber in some mud, because Chamber may be all fucked up due to Onslaught, but his mutation means he still doesn't need to breathe. Angelo then uses some new applications of his own powers to defeat the Executioner. This is one of the few stories to really spotlight Skin as a character. With their car all messed up, the two begin walking on foot, but the defeat of Onslaught suddenly fixes the problems with Chamber's power. Instead of returning to the Academy straight away, Angelo decides he needs to take care of something in Los Angeles, and Chamber decides to come along. It turns out the one-year anniversary of Angelo's supposed death is coming, and he knows his mother and his girlfriend, Torres, presumably the Torre character mentioned in the earlier issue, will visit his gravesite. He doesn't want them to cross paths, so he has Jono distract Torres while Angelo disguises himself as an old man and sits with his mother at the cemetery, comforting her on the loss of her son. Skin and Chamber return to the Massachusetts Academy just in time to be transported to the middle of the sea on a raft alongside their classmates by the nefarious Black Tom Cassidy. The students are all in danger of heat stroke, but Angelo in particular turns out to be vulnerable to the sun because his skin spreads when he's weak. Monet identifies the problem, and Chamber manages to tear part of the raft away to improvise a barrier above Angelo to block the ultraviolet radiation. They're rescued by Glorian, the Shaper of Dreams, who you do not need to worry about. The reality-altering Glorian tries to grant their heart's desires by placing them in fantasy worlds, but he's frustrated by Angelo. Skin doesn't wish for anything and wants to make the best of the shitty hand he's been dealt rather than live a lie. His position makes Glorian realize his delusions aren't true happiness, and he sets the kids free. When he asks Angelo what he wants, Angelo asks to go home. He means the Massachusetts Academy, but the group is teleported to Los Angeles, where Operation Zero Tolerance is now in full swing. This is around when Scott Lobdell leaves Generation X, replaced first by fill-in writers and then more permanently by Larry Hama. Gen X hides out in LA with Angelo's cousin Gil, the only person who knows he's actually alive. With nowhere else to turn, Angelo decides to reach out to Torres. For some reason, she's infuriated to discover he's alive, but before things can be explained, they're attacked by Sentinels. Torres is also a mutant, and they're forced to work together. She guides Gen X through the sewer system to a garage owned by her family and continues to aid them until the event ends and the students return to the Massachusetts Academy. This is also the story where Monet is revealed to secretly be a pair of young twins merged into one being, but that's swiftly retconned so that a real Monet can show up and replace her seamlessly, so don't worry about it. See the Monet episode if you're confused, because you are not alone. 
In the December 1998 special Generation X one half, a collaboration with Wizard Magazine by Larry Hama and Alejandro Garza, we finally get Angelo's backstory. While he's been implied throughout the series to have been a street heavy himself, part of a gang, this story retcons him into more of a bystander. We learn that his girlfriend, Torres, was involved with the gang because her family was tied up in it, including her cousin Lupo. Angelo's mother, a strict religious woman, did not approve of Torres, and Angelo tried to convince Torres to leave the gang. On the fateful night that's been hinted at previously, Torres, Lupo, and another member of the gang drove into a rival group's territory, with Angelo in the car with them. Torres intended to make peace, but Lupo opened fire on the other youths. Angelo tried to grab Lupo's gun, but his mutant powers manifested from the stress, and as his skin distended, he fainted from the shock. Angelo woke up to find the car on fire and a homeless man stealing his wallet. Three dead bodies were beside the car, with Lupo and Torres missing. Angelo was still holding the gun. He escaped before the car exploded, but the homeless man was burned to a crisp while holding Angelo's wallet, which was retrieved by police when they identified the body. Angelo assumed that Torres murdered the rival gang members herself, and he didn't want to testify against the woman he loves, so he decided to let the world believe he's dead. In the present, Angelo decides to finally make things right with Torres. Accompanied by Jubilee and Husk, he returns to Los Angeles and learns Torres thinks he committed the murders. The explosion in the car had actually been caused by Torres accidentally, when her own fiery mutant power activated from stress at the same time. Lupo interrupts their meeting, and it's revealed that he killed the rival gang members and pinned it on Angelo because he thought Angelo was dead. He now intends to kill Angelo and Torres to cover it all up, but Torres is able to kill him with her powers while Angelo hides behind a dumpster with Husk and Jubilee. That's when Angelo's mother arrives, because people are telling her that her son is alive and back in Los Angeles. She witnesses Torres killing Lupo, and accuses her of being a witch who's made a pact with the devil. Torres explains she's a mutant with inborn powers, and that Angelo was one too, something Angelo's mother refuses to accept. She insists that if Angelo, now an angel in heaven, had ever showed a hint of the devil, she would have disowned him. Eavesdropping, Angelo overhears the conversation and decides he must remain officially dead for his mother's sake. In the following month's issue, 34, the local police chief's daughter in Massachusetts has stolen precious items from a few of the students. We discover Angelo's prized possession is Lupo's gun from that night his power activated. He broke the gun and jammed it so he could keep it specifically as a reminder rather than as a weapon. There's not much skin-specific content for a while after that. Once Jay Ferber takes over writing duties on the book and new investor Adrienne Frost admits human students to the academy, Angelo is one of the visible mutants who has to begin passing as a regular human with a medical condition. A supposed pigmentation disorder explains his gray skin, but his human peers remain skeptical. In issue 57, Angelo is despondent that no one will want to invite him to the school dance, so Artie and Leech ask Monet to go with him. Angelo is touched by her surprising kindness, but Monet explains she wasn't being kind at all. She'd intimidated all the other boys at the school, and therefore had also been in need of a date. Under new writers Brian Wood and Warren Ellis, Angelo is outed as a mutant when he defends a human student from bullies, and while Emma tries to explain it away, nobody's really buying it. Shortly thereafter, Adrienne starts a riot at the school and sets explosives. Sink is killed rescuing bystanders from a blast, leaving the rest of Gen X reeling. Angelo decides to begin training harder, the better to use his power to help others as Sink had, and in issue 73, he uses some new applications of his powers, like shaping his skin into bola-like whip extensions, to save Banshee from criminals. The book ends two issues later, as Gen X decide their mentors are no longer reliable. Banshee has descended into alcohol abuse after the murder of Moira McTaggart, and Emma is lying to the kids about murdering Adrienne. They leave the school for good, with Angelo and Jubilee deciding to take a road trip together back to their mutual hometown of Los Angeles. They return to publication a year later in 2002's issue 34 of X-Men Unlimited, an anthology title, where they star in the story My Name in Lights by Ken Su Chong and Christina Chen. We learn they're living as roommates. Angelo's begun working in fast food, desiring a normal life, while Jubilee pursues an acting career. 
Anlo is leery of Jubilee's agent, who seems sketchy, but she dismisses him as jealous. A few days later, Jubilee returns in tears, revealing her agent made a pass at her. She apologizes for being mean to Anhalo. The following year, in the first issue of Chuck Austin's Holy War storyline in Uncanny X-Men, Skin and Jubilee are two of the mutants kidnapped by the bigoted Church of Humanity and crucified on the front lawn of the Xavier School. Jubilee is saved by a transfusion of Angel's healing blood, a recently developed secondary mutation, but Anhalo's blood type is not compatible, and he dies. Four issues later, we learn that his mother had also died in the time since Gen X, and Anhalo has been buried beside her in a family plot. When anti-mutant bigots complain about a mutant being buried near their own loved ones, the funeral director has Anhalo exhumed and cremated over Jubilee and Husk's objections. His ashes are given to Jubilee. In this story, he is called Anhalo Torres, which is a pretty startling mistake. Jubilee reveals that back when they were living together, Anhalo had asked her out on a date, but she was afraid of ruining their friendship and turned him down. She says she regrets it now, knowing that he was going to die soon. Six years later, in 2009, Anhalo is one of many dead characters resurrected and brainwashed by Selene to serve in her army in the franchise-wide event Necrotia. He returns to the grave at the end of the event, and makes his real return ten years after that, in... The 2019 soft reboot House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, in which he's one of many mutants resurrected by the power of the mutant circuit called the Five and welcomed to the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. Anlo's been limited to cameos so far in this era, but is clearly living his best life in paradise. A data page indicates he was moved up the resurrection queue because Sink, one of the first resurrections due to his critically useful power, was having trouble adjusting and needed a friend. Bringing back Anhalo 2 to help him psychologically proved so effective that the resurrection protocols were altered going forward to emphasize peer groups being resurrected together. And sure enough, in 2021, at the Hellfire Gala, when Sink is elected to the first Krakoan X-Men team, Skin is right beside his friend, cheering him on. X-Men, X-Men. And we're back. Thank you for your patience. I hope you enjoyed that character file. I hope you enjoyed whichever ad I've managed to put in this episode. I'm still... <laughs> so the ad thing is, is complicated, and I didn't realize this until I clicked it on for season two, but they don't start the matching process with advertisers until you click it on. So I'm sorry that oh. like in three episodes in a row now, it's just been the same ad probably, and... The process is ongoing, and hopefully there will be more variety. Actually, it's automated, so when you're listening to this, listener, if you're, like, coming from the future, then you might be hearing a wide variety. I don't actually... Because it'll just play one of the things I've recorded, is how it works. But hey, if you, wanna, if you want this free, entertaining X-Men content, then deal <laughs> with it. If you would like an ad-free experience, <laughs> then you can subscribe to the Patreon at patreon.com slash rebrocast. Join the House of Zaladin tier. It's just $5 a month. Actually, Terry, I have one bone to pick. I thought Reptil was great, but oh, uh-oh. if you have a hero who has the power to turn into dinosaurs, I feel like the obvious villain for that hero to fight is the dinosaur sorceress herself, Zaladane, She Who Speaks. I'm just putting it out there. That's another uh, way. Who, wait, who? who, who? <laughs> oh, you haven't listened to that many episodes of this podcast then because she's, you know, oh, it's so stupid. She's the mascot of the pod because the fans really responded. She's only appeared 12 times, which is why a Zaladane is 12 appearances on this show. She's Polaris's evil sister, long lost, who is a witch in the Savage Land. And died in 1991. So I've just been trying to get someone to bring her back. I see. Well, see, my witch that lives in the jungle is the Hag of the Pits, who was like a Jack Kirby, you know, Stanley. And I appreciate you using a Lee Kirby classic. And she created his amulet, so I had to use her. (laughs) I know, but I just feel like if you get a second arc at some point... not what we're talking about? No, it's fine. It's just if you get a second arc at some point, the resurrection of Zaladin, Queen of the Sun People, 
I just think a woman who commands legions of dinosaurs would be a cool person for the dinosaur hero to fight. Just my thought, just my two cents. That's a free idea, Marvel, for anybody listening. Cool. I'm looking her up right now. I want to see what she looks like. She looks pretty fierce. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. There's merch at the Cerebro store if you want to go peek. Valentine oh, I have Smith seen this character amazing. before because yeah. this... She was okay. on the cartoon for like yeah, two th- episodes. That's, that's why I recognized. She was also a boss fight in the Sega Genesis game. <laughs> oh, wow. In the Savage Land She was in level? the first level, yeah. All right. Okay. Okay. Anyway. Well, if I ever take saying... her up there. Well, but she's, you said she's dead now. Yeah, but she's magical and it's been 30 years. I feel like at this point, you know, also she's probably a mutant. It's never been said, but like at this point you could just Krakoa her back. It would be very easy. That's true. All right. Anyway, it's just, I, I feel the need whenever I have a pro on because now at this point I'm like invested. I'm like someone will bring this character back. Thank God, <laughs> Because it's becomes like the fan energy around her has been so funny. Well, now I'm on board. Now I'm, now I'm there. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I will know that the podcast has really like penetrated popular culture when there's a Marvel Legends Zaladane figure from Hasbro. Like, I feel like it will, we'll get there someday. Yeah. They did a Sauron build a figure and I feel like they would be cute standing next to each other i don't understand so i literally paid someone to make a custom reptile action figure for mm-hmm. me because i don't understand maybe because the character is not as popular as you i know. think probably because he's newer right like they they tend to go with like the old classics from but like, like the 70s to have a toy that you can remove its limbs and add dinosaur limbs onto it like that's a very natural thing, collectible action right? figure yeah, yeah you could have people would buy more than one to like display like this is ways. i know that your listeners can't see this but this is literally like i saw it on your uh on your social <laughs> yeah. it's very cool yeah someone um, made teeny like a captain written Betsy that they showed. Oh, cool. I don't think that they actually like sent it to her, but they were like really excited to show her. And she was like, that is so freaking cool. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> anyway, with all that character file business out of the way, it was probably a pretty short one because he's only really appeared in Gen X, honestly. And even in Gen X, I can't help but point out, and this is something I noticed when I was rereading a lot of Gen X for the Monet episode, because I was like, I really actually got to read this shit or I'm going to especially for that character, for that character, like because she's so confusing. But I couldn't help but notice that of the core cast, he's probably the one who gets the least amount of personal page space. And is one of the characters that appears on the least on the covers. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that's because people find him visually unpleasant, or I wonder if it's because the backstory that he was given made it difficult for some people to relate to him, let's say. See, I don't know. And I, I'm i not someone who found him usually like visually like unpleasant. Once Pachala left, I feel like he looked a lot more... He also was mastering his powers over time. So he started to look more like... It, it, it just reminded me more of like... Early on, he looks pretty melty a lot of the time. Like his face will be sort of melting. But I think that, you know, the way I saw it was that his mutation kind of makes him look like Reed Richards using his powers, Mm -hmm. like the stretchy kind of thing. And so, yeah, he never really seemed that kind of like grotesque to me. I do have a, I do like have a weird thing where I go back and forth between liking his like little button stubby nose or his like long pointy nose because <laughs> he's been the Pinocchio nose he, yes. I feel like in the Dodson era he's like very Pinocchio's I think I like the the, the long it's distinctive pointy nose. yeah it makes him look different than like you know 
I don't know. Yeah, I mean, when he popped up in that cameo at the Hellfire Gala, you were immediately like, that's skin, because he has, like, some stretchy fingers and his nose is, like, kind of gonzo. He looked so cool. It was a good look. It was nice to see him. He also kind of has, like, that man bun. Yeah, they gave him, like, kind of a, yeah. He's wearing, like, a crucifix earring, this yellow kind of flowy outfit, and he, it's a great panel. Like, he's excited for his friend. Yeah, it felt very L.A., actually. Yeah. He did appear once before that in like I think it was House of X he's in one panel so I got do we want to talk about this right now like why he was brought back um so in the story what happens is Professor Xavier fast tracks Sink as one of the people to resurrect because Sink's power they were still perfecting resurrection and at the time they didn't know that the resurrection process energizes the five rather than tires them out so they were worried that the five would become exhausted and risk burning out their powers or whatever from too much right. stressing them. That Sink, Sink could, he could be used as redundancy. Exactly. If Sink fives. walked in, someone could take a break and like rest for a few hours while Sink copies their power. So they brought Sink back as one of the first resurrections. And when he didn't adjust immediately to the weirdness of being they said, back. Sink needs a therapy dog. Yeah. They said, well, he has a friend who died who's from the same class. Let's move him up the list also. So they fast-tracked Skin so that Sink would have a companion as he, like, worked through his issues. I have so many thoughts about this. <laughs> like, I, like what, do, what does it do to you as a person to know that you were brought back to life not because of who you are and what your abilities are right. and how what, what your value might be, but because your friend is sad and needs right needs some someone. Well, I mean, you know, and he would have come back like he was on the list. It's just that like they moved him up it. And the prioritizing of who gets brought back first or not is something that I think is interesting. And and Dr. Nemesis talks about it a little bit in Way of X. He says we are definitely at risk of becoming a eugenic state if we only bring back people whose powers are valuable or if we prioritize, rather, the people whose powers are valuable. And part of that is someone who's willing to die in the crucible in a fight is someone who presumably right. can defend themselves to some extent. There are a lot of mutants who are Their not that temperament. not be that, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. even and if you're in the crucible, you don't have your powers, but, like, there's an attitude differential between someone like Callisto and someone whose power is mostly cosmetic or is not a battle oriented power. Right. Right. So, you know, my theory on that is that it was a suggestion that Emma made because she actually wanted to move her students up the queue. I can, I like that. So I think that she would be like, ah, Charles, if he's having trouble adjusting, bring Angela back. He's delightful, you know? And I think it was her way of like, because somehow she also finagled all of the Hellions being back already. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, they don't have like Cat's Eye, God love her. I'm a huge fan. She's not an Omega level. She's a cat. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So. (laughs) So, yeah, I think that also changed like their resurrection protocols because like, you said they are now well yeah they said that now we're thinking about it now, as opposed like, yeah, to like this makes yeah. more sense so we're going to start like generations that were together died together so actually mm-hmm. now i'm putting now i'm piecing it all together i bet i must suggested that too so here's here's my read they decide they're going to bring back sync for his obviously god tier incredibly useful power and then she's like i'll bring back skin also because he needs a buddy and then once that works she's like you know, I know that roulette is in the queue a little higher than the rest, but maybe we should just bring back everybody at once. 
Yeah. You know, like something like that. I can see it. I can see it. I could see it because she's always she's always planning. Actually, this week, as we're recording this, the issues that came out this week of Hellions, Excalibur and New Mutants, I got to say, like banger after banger after banger. And this issue of Hellions, those are I love pretty much everything coming out right now. But those three books are my favorites. I got to catch up. I won't say anything if you haven't read it yet. But the stuff that Zeb Wells writes for Emma in this issue of Hellions is just magnifique. (laughs) <laughs> so I am uh, I'm excited to see where it goes in the in the two issues that will end the book. Sadly, hmm. sometimes a book, I think, honestly, 12 to 24 in that range is a really, really good length for a book. Yeah, I think that it allows you to build a real arc. And obviously there are some titles like X-Men or Spider-Man or whatever that are going to go on to legacy issues 6000. But what if they only give you like four issues? That's a mini. That's different. I'm talking about like a longer <laughs> series. You know what I mean? Like people, there are some people who are sad that it's not going to be like 40 issues. And would I read 40 issues of Hellions? You bet your ass sure. I would. But I do think that much like Wells' New Mutants, which is a contained sort of like roughly 20 issue run, I think this is going to be an all time great run, like as one hardcover, which is not a bad thing. Yeah, gotcha. you know, mm-hmm. I love a mini, though. I'm a big fan of a mini. I'm in no way denigrating <laughs> a mini series, But there, you know, going in that you have four or five or six issues yeah. to finish everything out in. So it's a slightly different thing than being a year in and going, all right, we're going to sunset this. I mean. I assume that Zeb is ending Hellions because he got Spider-Man and that would be a lot to do. To right? take it, yeah. And he has there are, it's a team on Spider-Man but still that's like I believe he's like co-directing the Spider office or whatever, the writers room. So I, yeah. I imagine that's all right. I don't know, I haven't talked to him. I hope to talk to him soon. I'm a huge huge fan. But anyway, yeah, so that's my theory is that it's like a way of Emma sneakily getting her dead students higher up on the list, but it definitely gave me, when I read it, I was like, ooh, poor skin. Like, you know, because he also, he's never really been talked about in all the years he was dead. Right. Yeah, the last thing that I remember is that when he died, when he was, like, crucified, mm-hmm. was that that this was right after he had asked out Jubilee. This is revealed after he's dead. Yeah. yeah. And that they well they had been living together they've been in living like together LA. in a, yeah he was like working in the food service industry she was trying to be an actress yes <laughs> whatever and he asks her out and she says no and then he dies and there's <laughs> this air of like she reveals like i regret now that i didn't fuck him i guess it's a like that i didn't accept his love it's a very weird there's a very bizarre feeling of Say yes to the boy who asks you out, ladies, because you never you know. you never know if he's going to get crucified on the tomorrow. lawn. Right. You're going to feel guilty. You'll if, feel guilty you know. that you didn't let like, him hit. Kind of it's up. a little but odd. That's what I, that's what I want to know is, you know, I want to see the conversation mm-hmm. that Jubilee and Skin had when he came back. Right. I would write it. I would do it. Yeah. I similarly would really love to see Monet and Everett talk because I think it makes sense that we haven't seen them together very much like she's also with him and skin at the gala in that cameo yeah but Monet has grown more than I would say any of the other Gen X characters because she's the only one who's been really consistently published in the time since been used quite a bit and so she feels at this point a lot older than them as a character because we've read so much more of her and yeah. she has changed a lot over time and matured a lot. So it makes sense to me that it's like my high school boyfriend's back from the dead. Now, let's not think about the age differential because I I, I truly don't worry about it with X-Men ages. It's not, and especially with Krakoa. And you're never gonna, yeah. It doesn't matter and they're never gonna tell us. So don't worry about it. Um, 
let's assume they brought him back the age he's supposed to be, let's say. So taking that out of the equation, my high school boyfriend who died when we were 17 and me at, let's say, 23, 24, yeah. I'm very different from the Monet I was when I, I'm speaking as Monet right now, which like I wish, but I'm not nearly that glamorous, but you get what I'm saying. Like if it were me and that happened to me, that me at 17 and me at 23, 24 are very, very, very different people. And I don't know if I would be like, let's jump into this relationship. I think I would find it awkward. That's what I mean is like, there's so much that like, you know, I can only imagine Jubilee like, hey, you know, and then this awkward conversation. And then she's like, I was a vampire for a while, but like, I'm not anymore. I miss and, like, it. Been- I was the one person who loved Vampire Jubilee. I, I did not like it. And then like, because she can't age is the thing. They never let her age. So it was funny. To right. Just, so I, I just to wanted them her... to give her the fireworks back, but keep her a vampire. That was my, gotcha. that was my angle that I, but I, you know, I get it. It was not But I can see twist. skin being like, and you have a baby now and right. he's like a dragon sometimes. Well, also <laughs> like... she's low key dating chamber. That's what I was going to ask you about too, because in the Marvel um, voices, voices identity. identity yeah are they are so, they like what what's happening they're on a picnic together mm-hmm. and like he brings the baby and yep so in gen x volume two by christina strain which came out i want to say 2017 jubilee and chamber kind of get together in that what in what issue say that again it's gen x volume two it's like the second book called gen oh, x right. that christina strain and amal Carpena did she kind of put them together in that book. Like Husk actually encourages them. She's like, you know, John and I, you're not like compatible anymore, but I think that the two of you might actually. So this is even worse because then Skin, who I feel like his right. best friend was like, We didn't know if that had becomes more serious or continued, but then Strain came back to write that story in Identity and had them go out together. Because he had become at the very least like, very involved with the baby. So I think that the idea was like, we're like a family. But yeah, it's you come back and your best friend is now dating the girl you asked out who rejected you, who was another good friend of yours before your untimely death. There's a lot, there's a lot for me for like a story here. Yeah. Well, I think <laughs> so. that I think honestly that a Gen X volume three would really work at this exact moment. Like you wouldn't have Sync because he's busy, but like when Sam was on the X-Men and would pop into X-Force occasionally, you could have him pop by. I don't remember what, maybe it was New Mutants. There's a panel that people are talking about quite a bit where you see Monet. I know. Ru- running, you know, right? Yeah. And then there's these two the little two penances, little penances, yeah. Right? But I, I was told that that's just like her, her twin sisters who can also do that now. So that's who I would put is the two of them with skin right. with, with Jubilee, you know, what like. I think happened in that panel is that Rod Rice did something funny as like a visual gag. And we've all been now obsessing over like when Teeny was, did the Monet episode, she was just like, I think maybe their shapeshifters doing a prank. Like, I don't think anybody's key because the twins are such a continuity. Yeah snarl that but i do think that like a new book you just go these are monet's sisters and you don't otherwise explain them like you don't have to get into it you don't have to do that now yeah i think someone could do that but i think that generation x would be a really good title to you like the the way they're reusing titles i think that it would be a great book to do like something more about the youth of krakoa generally oh yeah as opposed to like the training element of the new mutants and i think that that could be a title where you have like because husk became a psychologist like a guidance counselor mm-hmm. so you could have her like helping the young and you could put characters like skin in that book you could have sink and monet do cameos Mondo. yeah <laughs> emma frost can have a cameo yeah and sink and monet and jubilee could cameo in from whatever books they're in we don't know where monet is going next but i assume she'll be somewhere yeah she's too popular to bench 
there's a lot of potential with these characters, especially now that they're all back. Maybe you put like skin in charge because I think it'd be so interesting to have this character who originated as someone who didn't care about joining the X-Men. He just wanted Mm -hmm. to be able to control his powers. So that he could look normal. Right. And now suddenly he's in like a situation where he kind of is teaching kids now the way that he was taught and sees the value. And yeah, and he could work more with like mutants who whose powers have disfigured them in some way or whatever, because that is a real thing that, as has been pointed out in Vita Ayala's Run of New Mutants, which I really do think is sensational, you know, Danny Moonstar doesn't quite understand Cosmar's experience because Danny's power mm-hmm. doesn't affect the fact that she's gorgeous. There's no... <laughs> right. Right? Like, you know, so Cosmar, whose power turned her into, like, a purple salamander-y looking thing yeah. with, like, a giant eyeball and eyeball. stretchy mouth, you know, she's not thrilled with her power and would like a do-over, please. Like, please resurrect me in a regular body because now I know how to control my power and it won't fuck up my face. And Skin is someone who could talk to a character like that and sort of meet them where they live. So I think that that's something you could absolutely do with this character. But I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's talk about the stories that do exist and your favorites from Gen X. The ones that are there. All (laughs) righty. Well... I will say that, like I mentioned earlier, I fell off a little ways into the series. And so mm-hmm. the stuff that happened in the era where Emma asked her sister yeah. to like fund the school and then human students were allowed in, that is an era that I kind of fell off. Like mm-hmm. I didn't read most of that stuff when it was coming out. I found it strange, though, that like they would allow human students at this school and then Skin has to pretend that I think his excuse is that he has elephantitis. He thinks about that so that he can be stretchy, but then they decide that they'll say he has a pigmentation disorder and so that he's just gray. And then he does this really weird, like physical impersonation of the hunchback of Notre, of Notre Dame. Dame, like the Disney version. Like the Disney yeah. version. Yes. Yeah. That's when he's suggesting elephantitis is his cover. Yeah. So that stuff I didn't really read when it was coming out. The stuff that I do like about Skin, and I wouldn't say that there's necessarily like one story, because this happens a couple of times mm-hmm. throughout the, his stuff, is the stuff with his mom, yeah. with like his religious mom. There is a section where he, because apparently his mother believes that he's dead. Yes. And then it's revealed later that like someone tells her that he's alive. And he overhears a conversation between her and then I think his ex-girlfriend Torres, I think is Miguel her name. Torres, yeah. Yeah. She realizes that Torres is a mutant. And she says something about like, you made a pact with the devil, right. et cetera, et cetera. And she's like, yeah, and what if your son had been a mutant? And not knowing that he's listening in, she says something, I would have disowned him. You know, I'd rather he be dead than a mutant, kind of. Like, there's an air of that. I think that the way that skin had been portrayed was as kind of like this tough and, you know, angry kind of person who's upset about his mutation and who is just sort of like not very emotional. And you see in those panels that like that really kills him. Mm -hmm. That stuff's really relatable. It hits me as someone who grew up in a very religious household. Yeah. So you grew up Mormon. I sure did. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Very specific experience. And I would say that I, I had heard that from other Mormon parents that they would rather their kids be dead than queer. Mm-hmm. And that's such a, as we all know, like metaphor for mutant powers for the mutant, the mutation. So yeah, I think that that stuff is really strong writing. It really kind of hits home to me. I understand his character in those moments. I do. I, I feel like if they 
picked up his character again, I would want him to to confront his mom. She's dead, unfortunately. Now bring her back. <laughs> in the story in the Austin run, after he dies, when they do the whole thing about how they can't bury him at the cemetery with his family because he's a mutant mm. and it becomes a whole thing. Um, the reason that Jubilee and Husk are the ones in charge of what happens to his body is because his mother has died in the interview. Oh, gotcha, years. yeah. So they want to bury him with her. And then sort of like from beyond the grave, she rejects him essentially because like the cemetery won't allow. Well, he needs to burial. walk into that cemetery and have a conversation. With I his would love to see mother. that. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I really like that stuff. I think I also love, like I said, nothing necessarily storylines, but specific moments. I think he has genuine relationships with a few characters throughout Generation X husk they have this like little game where they call each other like city mouse and country mouse yeah which is cute it's cute jonathan he does like road trips with they relate to each other in looking like less than you know i guess quote unquote normal they're the two who have to hide a lot right. when the human students arrive like they have the visual at one point penance kind of was lumped in with them as having mm -hmm. to hide and not go i think she the three of them were not allowed to go on some mission and then that's when they encounter like executioner yes yeah an executioner has come to kill Skin because Skin has been using his Anna Espinosa like ID and stuff to buy things or whatever. Mm -hmm. And because officially that person is dead, the executioner, not to be confused with executioner's song, I think it was just too mm -hmm. cool a name not to use. The executioner who hunts mutants as a bounty hunter and is not a mutant, he's a fucked up character. He popped up in Marauders briefly early on. Ooh. he assumes this mutant must have killed this boy and stolen his identity and stuff. So the executioner yeah. comes to take skin in. So that's a, a part of the, his story that's a little confusing because then isn't, isn't it like, no, but I actually am this person. So let's get into it. Yes. It's a retcon, his backstory, like with many backstories. What I think was done is that after Lovedell left the book, it seemed like Larry Hama maybe wanted to softens some of the perhaps slightly racially insensitive elements of the character. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> In early Gen X, what's given to you is, yeah, he is a tough guy because he was a member of a street gang. He was involved in organized crime in the barrio and yada, yada, yada. And what's revealed in the special issue Generation X, like one half or whatever that they did with Wizard, is more of his backstory. We knew in early Gen X that he was believed dead by the rest of the gang or whatever. What's revealed in this flashback issue that they do is that Torres, his girlfriend, was the one involved in the gang activity. He was more of an innocent bystander. And that he was with them when... Their car exploded. It's complicated. Don't worry about it. I'm sure I got yeah. into it in the character file. But basically, he ended up taking the blame for all of them dying. And what happened was his mutant power had catalyzed during the explosion to protect him, which happens to a couple different characters. And when he saw what he looked like now, he was like, I can't go home. My mother should just... Basically, my mother should believe I'm dead. So I assume even if he hadn't heard it as explicitly as he later does... He could tell that... He knew already. He knew. His mom yeah. thought of mutants. Exactly. So there was an explosion? <laughs> yeah, so that's what... So basically, that's when Torres's power also activated. And her power is over fire, which is why his mother is like, oh, witchcraft, you know? The devil. Mm-hmm. 
The way that it's retconned is that Torres was trying to make peace with the rival gang. She was involved in the gang because of her family's involvement in the gang. So it's both of them have this family dilemma. She wants to make peace and her friends, though, are secretly like planning to kill their enemies when they get there. It becomes a whole thing. Anola tries to stop it, but his power activates and he gets all stretchy. And then Torres's power activates. We learn later in the initial story, it's just an explosion. But when we meet her again, we see that it's because she developed a fire power. But basically what happened was a homeless man stole Angela's wallet while he was unconscious. And then when the car exploded, the homeless man was killed and his body was burned so badly that they assumed because the wallet was on him that it was Anlosi who's declared dead. So Skin just decided, my mother would never accept me like this. I'm going to go with it. The implication in the earlier stories was more, I'm hiding from my, like, gangbanger past in a way that, you know, but the retcon is just, oh, no, his girlfriend was involved in gang activity and he wanted to get her out and it was yada, 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 which I think was Larry Hama or maybe editorial trying to tone down the potentially, because again, as you note, there aren't that many Latino characters, at least not of any prominence in the Marvel universe. So I think they maybe wanted to be like, maybe he's not, a street gang kid, yeah. you know? And so this is also, this also explains why someone would believe that he isn't Angelo and he's pretending to use his identity. Right. It basically turned into Body Heat, which is a great movie <laughs> if you've never seen it. <laughs> Kathleen Turner is iconic yeah. to the listeners. I know that the young listeners sometimes are like, what are you talking about? I'm like, that's a 70s movie. It's good. Google it. <laughs> you have a Google it on your phone. It's pretty sexy. That's probably like the peak of Kathleen Turner being just like an astounding looking person. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she's always like sexy, but that was like, wow. But anyway, what stories do you really love from that Gen X period that you have read? Because I know you you're saying you fell off toward the end. But when you were in it, like Lobdell and Bachalo or Lobdell and the other artists or even I think the Hama period you were still reading. It was a character that I love and I love more and more the more that we get of him, which isn't a lot. Yeah, but it's a character that I want to see more of. And I feel like there's a lot to his character that could be explored now that was just touched upon in the original run. If, if it were up to me, I would I would write that he is both Puerto Rican and Mexican. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's an elegant solution. It's like the Bishop problem where it's like Bishop is Aboriginal Australian, but most writers and readers think that he's African-American and mm. you could just have him be both. Right. Like that is a thing that happens. So yeah. again, it's like how you very easily can be Puerto Rican and Mexican if you are a black African person and an Aboriginal Australian person, and you're both treated by racists as quote unquote black people, then it is totally plausible that those are people who would find each other. Right. So, you know, that happens in the real world all the time. Some stories that I really like from that earlier period before like the flashback with his mom, I like the stuff that he has with Artie and Leech. Oh yeah. Yeah. He puts on this sort of tough front of like, I hate kids. And as someone who also does that, but also like, because like, I find children annoying. I don't like being in the presence <laughs> of small children. However, if I were responsible for this kid, I would be nice to the kid, right? So yeah. it's like, I, I identify with that story where he's like kind of babysitting and he's just very, oh, well, you know, I fucking hate being stuck with these rugrats. But Everett can tell that actually he likes it. Like he helps yeah. Everett build a treehouse for Artie and Leech. It's like a cute thing i think that what becomes clear is that he's more freaked 
because Leech's power negation field interacts weirdly with his own power, and Skin obviously has a lot of complicated feelings about his power. The other one that I really, really like, because again, this is not a character who gets a ton of stories to himself. You mentioned the mom stuff. I like the story. It's somewhere like, somewhere in like 18 to 22-ish. It's the anniversary of his death. And he goes to his own grave and like disguises himself as an old man. To talk to his mom, right? To sit with his mom on the bench. Yeah. She's in a yellow dress with a matching hat. A little hat. Mm -hmm. He has Jono go make sure that Torres and everybody else from the gang are like not around because he doesn't want his mother and Torres to be in the same space. But he talks to his mom and then he watches Torres like, you know, come talk to his gravesite or whatever. And it's like a healing moment for him, but he still feels like it's better. He doesn't know that Torres is immune at this point. And also, I think this is before the retcon that he wasn't in the gang himself, right? So I think that he still feels like he's better off letting them all think that he's dead. And I think also he has found sort of a purpose and a life in Massachusetts with Gen X. The thing that's interesting, though, is shortly thereafter is the story where they fight Black Tom. I was just going to mention this. Yeah, they end up like sent into the ocean, teleported onto this raft in the middle of the ocean. Yeah, that's what I mean when I say that, like versus storylines about him. There are moments that I really like because I feel like he did have strong relationships with some of the other kids. One that I didn't feel was very strong or developed was any kind of relationship with him and Monet. There was stuff, mm-hmm. and, but at the beginning of the of Generation X, there wasn't too much there. And then in this, there's a really touching moment in this issue where because they are out in the ocean and like his skin is spreading out. And Monet realizes that the sun is going, she's it, like, like, his skin is him. so thin. Yeah when it spreads that he's going to have third degree burns if we don't figure out a way to shield him. And she's literally trying to like hold him together. Yeah. Yeah. For her in particular, because, and this is before the twins plot all gets resolved, but for her in particular, who's been like the bitch of the team the whole time, Mm -hmm. who's been cold to really have this moment where she wants to like give care to this person because she can't, She's the genius of the team also is the thing. Like she's mean, but she's also the character. She's the Hank McCoy intellectually of that group. So she's not a doctor, but she immediately understands what's happening because she can put two and two together scientifically. And she immediately becomes like very doting and Chamber figures out, okay, we'll just tear away part of the raft and we'll put it up like a parasol. Yeah, We just have to make sure he stays under it. So that's when he's found by Glorian, the Shaper of Dreams, who's like <laughs> a character you don't have to worry about, who Gen X encounters out on the sea. He is like a weird magical guy who gives people their heart's desires. I believe on the cover of that issue, it shows Jonathan playing the guitar, but he has like a not blown up face. He turns into like a, a, like a hot rock star and Paige is his like ditzy girlfriend. And part of what convinces Glorian that he's not actually giving them their desires is realizing that Paige doesn't want to be like a kept woman, that that doesn't yeah. interest her. But Glorian is really frustrated by Skin because Skin, and this is a really interesting point of characterization, Skin doesn't wish for anything. You know, he's like, I'm ugly. I miss my family. The world would be at a better place without anti-mutant bigotry. But I am what I am. My life is my life. I don't wish to change anything. 
And I don't want something fake to make me feel like my life is better when it isn't. And so Glorian's very, very frustrated. That's what compels him to start looking deeper into the fantasies he's created and realizing that he hasn't actually made them happy. It's Skin's ability to be really realistic and a little cynical and a little self-defeating about the world that becomes a strength here because he's like, I'm not interested in fantasy. I'm interested in the shitty hand I got dealt and making my life livable despite that. Yeah. Which, especially if you look at mutants and Gen X, I think lends itself to this reading a lot. Mutants in a disability politics kind of lens I think that, you know, his power has made his body not what he wants it to be, but he's not wishing to have that taken away because then it wouldn't be his life, right? It would be a different life that isn't the one that he has. Yeah. And he wants his life to improve. He doesn't want to be given someone else's life. I also find that highly relatable too, because, you know, I a while back I filmed a documentary about like queer ex-Mormon kids and people. Mm-hmm there was this moment where I was talking to a friend of mine and I was saying like, you know, a lot of the stuff about my childhood is really, for me, intense, really messed up in regards to the Mormon church and who I am as a queer person. But if I think about like the past, if I think about my whole life, I can't rightly say I would change anything because I like, I like the person that I am now. And the person that I am now is because of all of that stuff. And so it's really difficult to kind of like, you know, wrap your brain around that. But I think that that's sort of what's happening here with um, yeah, with Angelo or Angelo or whichever you want to say. Whatever. I'm flipping between <laughs> them at random. And then I just started going with skin because I was like, you know what? Choose your own adventure. It also reminds me of this moment. I don't know why I'm bringing this up. It reminds me of this moment back when Oprah was on. <laughs> she did an episode <laughs> about like the happiest people in the world. Yes, I remember that. They were people, young people in like Sweden, Denmark, Norway, you know, and she asked them why they felt they were so happy. And one of the things they said was the first thing they said was because we're content with what we have. Mm-hmm. Like we're not, we're not searching or trying to reach some sort of unattainable American dream where we continually need more or want more. Yeah. And then they were like, also our government takes care of us. Our healthcare is free. Our college is free. And we um, don't believe in religion. <laughs> yeah. And she was like, Oh, I do. It's like, yeah, we know Oprah. Okay. But that was just interesting. And it reminded me of that too, that like, even though he got dealt this really shitty hand that he has learned in a way to sort of be content with it. Mm-hmm. And that that kind of also became a little superpower of his. Yeah. The thing that I think is most interesting about that arc, apart from that exchange, is that when it ends, Glorian turns him and is like, what do you want? And he says, I want you to send us home. And he means send us back to the Massachusetts Academy. But and that's not where they go. They get sent to Los Angeles. And I think that that is interesting because that speaks to something unresolved in his own heart, right? Like with what he's left behind there. Right. And it, he may have been thinking Massachusetts, but that means deep down, he still considers Los Angeles. Home is yeah. still Los Angeles that he left behind and that he's longing to resolve these problems in. That's when Operation Zero Tolerance pops off and they can't get a hold of Sean or Emma. They end up going to his cousin, Gil, who it's revealed is someone who knows he's alive, which like, you know, whatever, that's fine. We need a plot hook. They're so like, we need help that he ends up deciding that he's going to reach out to Torres. And this is where we find out that Torres herself is a mutant 
she is furious at him. We aren't, it's not 100% clear why. I mean, you could assume it's just because he led her to believe he was dead. We'll understand later why. But at the moment, she's just furious. She does help them once the Sentinels attack because she's also vulnerable. She leads them through the sewers beneath Los Angeles to like her family's garage. And that helps them escape until Operation Zero Tolerance eventually is over. But this is also the arc where like, Monet gets split into the twins and all that. Like a lot of stuff happens in this period, but that's sort of of Skin's element of it is like because he's home and has these connections, he's able to guide them to where they need to be. But he doesn't resolve everything he needs to resolve, right? Like it's not until several issues later that you get that special where he goes home. And before that, you have that issue where the police chief's daughter in Massachusetts... She like breaks into the academy right the she school. steals Paige's diary and like learns things about all of them the cowboy hat that uh wolverine gave to jubilee yes jubilee's gift from wolverine and then a gun angelo's gun yeah which is like what the hell is that about i forget who it is it's either jubilee or husk but someone is just like why do you have a gun like, that, <laughs> like that's not like they're freaked out by that and so then not long after that story after they convince the girl, like, these are really important to us, like, please keep our secret and please give us back these things. And then she sees them save the day and she's like, you are heroes, yada, yada, yada. Whatever. Heartwarming tale. After school special, whatever you want to call it. Then comes that Gen X one half, like, wizard special that they did. This is now Larry Hama writing the book. And this is when we get the full flashback of what happened the night that he was believed dead. We learn that Torres was also innocent. What we learn is that Angelo assumed that Torres had killed the rival gang members and Torres assumed Angelo had killed the rival gang members like, for so, her. This is soap opera. <laughs> it's so literally just talk to each other, yeah. right? But it was actually their friend Lupo who was with them at the time who decided when he thought that Angelo was dead because he saw the dead homeless man that he would pin it on Angelo. Then in the present, they get into another confrontation with him and Torres kills him which is pretty dramatic. That's when Skin's mom shows up because she's been told that he's alive and around or whatever, like because everybody's now gossiping. She sees Torres kill someone with fire powers and is like, you... Made a deal with the devil. Exactly. And Torres is like, I, you know, I was born with my powers. I'm a mutant. I was born with it. And so was Angelo. Maybe she's born with it. Right. But like, and your son was one too. That was my Maybelline joke. (laughs) You know, I got you. I got you. I got you. I got you. (laughs) She tells the mother, like, Skin was also a mutant. And she says, my Angelo, who is now an angel in heaven, was no hellspawn like you. If he had shown any sign of the devil, I would have disowned him and never spoken his name again. And Skin and Jubilee and Husk are behind a dumpster, like, eavesdropping. And they hear this. And so he realizes... For her sake, I need to stay dead. Yeah. Which is, I disagree with that decision. I think, uh, fuck her. You should have Emma Roberts, like, turned around. Surprise, bitch, truly. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I wish had happened. You can't disown me, I disown you. Exactly, that's a scene I would have liked to see, but it does fit his character that it would just make him retreat further. The sad thing is that because he dies so soon after Gen X, we never really get to see him embrace himself in that way. And I think that's what the Krakoa age really could do for this character. Because he's now surrounded by people like himself and he is safe and he has a found family around him. Soon after that is when Jay Ferber takes over the book and that is when the human students come in 
and Gen X has to pretend that they're not mutants and hide. There's a chamber passes as like a burn victim who like can't speak and uh, skin tells everybody that he has like a pigment disorder in his skin that makes him gray. Sure. Which like, sure. The human students are like, okay, but they all do seem a little skeptical. Meanwhile, Artie and Leech and Penance have to like live in the basement, which is like fucked up. Yeah. Like they can't use that treehouse that Everett and Skin made anymore, you know? Yeah. This is just bizarre. It's literally like, otherwise the school will close. And I'm like, can't. I don't believe this because are you telling me that Emma wouldn't just like. Go to Charles. Yeah. She she has to go to her sister for a minute. That's it. I get that it's for the plot because this is our new villain. But sure. it doesn't really make sense that she would go to Adrienne before she would go to like even Tony Stark. Like there are right. so many people she would go to first. You know what I mean? Or go, just go fund me. Like, come on. <laughs> they didn't have that back then, alas. Yeah, that's true. There is one story in that period that I really do like, though. Let me guess. Does it involve Monet? (laughs) It does. It sure does. And by this point, this is the real, quote unquote, Monet, because we've now retconned that the twins who were posing as Monet were just posing and that Penance was Monet and yada, 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 yada. All that Larry Hama retcon work. So we have the real character back. She's just as mean as the fake Monet was, though. So it, it's a pretty it's seamless transition. It's basically a don't worry about it. We're keeping yeah. the character. There's a school dance. And all the human students around have made Skin feel like really sad because he remembers when he thought he was like a good looking guy and all of that. He's like, no one's ever going to want to go to a dance with me. So Artie and Leech, because they love him, because he's like, they're tough big bro who secretly loves them and yada yada asked Monet to go to the dance with him. Monet does it and it wows everybody at the school because Monet is the most beautiful girl at the school. At the end, he's like, I just want to thank you. Like, you know, you did this to cheer me up and I really appreciate that. And Monet says, oh, that's not why I did it. I didn't do it for you at all. I did it because I intimidate all the boys at the school and no one asked me to go to the dance. (laughs) So I needed a date too, which is a funny, it's a funny reversal of like, you think she's going to be like, well, you know, I do have a softer side. It's like, oh no, I don't. (laughs) But it's also a good moment because it shows that like, just because she is beautiful and rich, she's not always going to be getting everything she wants. Yeah. Or embraced by the people around her because her affect is really scary. Right. Mm hmm. We have more in common than you think. But that's really their only, apart from the moment on the raft, which is technically the twins, that's really their only yeah. bonding moment. Right. I don't know. I like it when the two of them bond. I would love to see them I do have too. a scene together now. Mm-hmm. Then in the late run of Gen X, he honestly doesn't really do much. After Sync dies, he starts training a lot more heavily because he's like, I need to really work harder on controlling my power. And he manages to... Like, I remember the one that really freaks me out is he manages to, like, make a skin whip or, like, a bolo right. out of his does, skin. Like which bolas, is like, Out of the yeah. palm of his hand, it was like a bola. Those are so weird. It's freaky to me, but, like, that's, again, like, my body hard discomfort. Yeah, it's a little weird. When the book ends, Chamber has been invited to join the X-Men. Monet is going to, like, go back to Europe or whatever for a bit. Husk has some charity that she wants to get involved with, like an environmentalist charity. and. Skin and Jubilee are like, well, what are we going to do? And so they decide to take a road trip together back to Los Angeles, where they're both from. And that's when, as you mentioned, there's that X-Men Unlimited story 
Written by Ken Siu Chong and drawn by Christina Chan and inked by Joe Chan. So it's actually all Asian, which is probably the first time that had ever happened to Jubilee. Certainly. Right. I mean, Larry Hama had written her and Jim Lee had obviously drawn her. That's kind of cool. I didn't realize that until I just looked it up now. X-Men Unlimited was an anthology book. We see that Jubilee and Skin have moved in together in L.A. He's working fast food, like you said. She's trying to break into show business. And Skin doesn't trust her agent, who he thinks is a scuzzy guy. When he tells her that, she says, you're jealous of him. Mm -hmm. Or you're jealous of me. Like She says, you're jealous. Because you could never, whatever. And they have a bit of a fight about it. A few days later, though, she shows up with like mascara running down her face because her agent got fresh with her mm-hmm. and she had to run away, which I don't love that personally. But I, she comes and apologizes. So is she hiding the fact that she's a mutant while she's trying to act? Presumably, yes. I mean, at that moment, if a guy got fresh with you, wouldn't you just like let it out? <laughs> wouldn't you just like, wouldn't you just like firework his? It is probably that she's not publicly known to be a mutant, right? Yeah. And she would have just seen what happened to Dazzler when Dazzler decided to try being publicly a mutant and an actress, and it did not work out for her. So she's probably hiding it. It's an odd story. It just establishes them as roommates in LA who are, you know, happy. And will later, Chuck Austin retcons, perhaps because of the you're just jealous line or whatever, that Skin had a crush on her and had asked her out and that she had turned him down and wanted to just stay friends. Yeah. But the next time we see them is a few issues before Jubilee relates that story, which is when he and Jubilee are two of the characters who are kidnapped and crucified on the lawn by the Church of Humanity. This is in the Austin run. This is the very silly plot where this rogue anti-mutant faction within the Catholic Church wants to trigger the rapture, which... Vatican Catholics do not believe in, as far as I know, by a scheme on Nightcrawler. This is used to retcon Nightcrawler out of his priesthood is basically the core (laughs) use of this. It's like, you never became a priest. Your ordination was all part of the scheme. It was fake or whatever. I don't know. It's not a good plot. The most unfortunate thing about it is, so the four characters who are crucified, there might be someone else, but the ones I remember are Jubilee, Magma, Skin and Jesse Bedlam, the black character from late stage 90s X-Force, and Skin and Jesse are the two who die. Hmm. (laughs) So it's sort of like we just killed off these two men of color because no one has any interest in doing anything with them is the vibe that you get. Whereas like Jubilee and Magma have more cachet. Jubilee is this classic 90s Jim Lee X-Men character. Magma is a classic new mutant. These characters, quote unquote, matter. But it's a really stark moment with Magma in particular, because Magma is like a very racially fraught character generally, as like this white ancient Roman noblewoman from Brazil. So the fact that she lives and skin dies is a little bit... It's particularly like the explanation given for why Angel can't heal him, I think, is that their blood types are not compatible. That's what I remember, yeah. There is an air of like, I just think we don't know what to do with these characters anymore. Just kill them. Yeah, well, I mean, the Gen X kids in general, I think, like Austin had brought Husk onto the team, the X-Men team. And then around the same time, Peter David, a little bit later, Peter David brings Monet to X-Factor Investigations. But otherwise, the characters were pretty much unused. Joe Casey had used Chamber on his X-Men team immediately after Gen X was canceled, but it was a very brief run. Yeah. And then he pivots off to the Terry Weapon X pretty quickly. All the other characters, including Husk, really, once Austin's off that book, just kind of disappear for a really long time. Hmm. Gosh, it's been so long. Even Jubilee, because Jubilee gets decimated. 
but yeah, so that's his death. And then there's the plot, as we mentioned, where the people who own plots at the cemetery where his mother is buried now won't allow a mutant to be buried there. So he gets dug up and cremated against the wishes of Paige and Jubilee and Jubilee gets his ashes. I will say this is the issue where, and this is perhaps because of the fact that he didn't get a last name until Gen X and doesn't have one in Phalanx Covenant, but he's given a different last name, which is like my guy, like if you're killing him off, at least do the research on what his name is. Yeah. In this issue, he's called Angelo Torres, which could just be straight up. We didn't know that he had a last name, which would be unfortunate, like do the research, or it could be a, like, it's possible that Austin read the story with his girlfriend and got confused about <laughs> okay, like which name was which. I don't know. Like, it's just odd. It's bizarre. Yeah. The funeral director is like, Angelo Torres, he's a mutant. I can't bury him in my plot or whatever. And it's like, his name's Angelo Espinosa. So, like, Torres was his girlfriend. Anyway, whatever. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It's been fixed in the time since, but he hadn't appeared again until Krakoa, so it didn't really matter. I'm glad he's back. I think that this is a character that has a lot of potential. Like you said, his power is basically Reed Richards, but not as good. <laughs> well, it's true, because like he can't fully like morph into things or whatever, and he can't stretch that far. But it looks like he can with his hand turning into Bolas. So like... He has six feet of extra skin. He can stretch six feet. Yeah. And that's versatile enough that you could use it as an effective superpower. I just mean that like he can't like melt his bones down the way that right. Mr. Fantastic can like become a bouncy ball or whatever. <laughs> like he's not, <laughs> it's not quite that malleable. Yeah. It just makes me wonder like what they would, story-wise, do they really just bring him back as like this thing for Everett? Like do they, do you think anyone plans on doing anything with him? I don't know. I mean, Chamber and Husk are in the X-Men Unlimited comic that they're doing now on the app. Oh, okay. It's like a vertical integration thing. The story that Hickman did with Declan Shalvey, Chamber and Husk are in that. Like they factor into the plot. If Hickman was staying around, he's a huge Gen X fan. So I wouldn't have been surprised, but I don't know if there's anyone in the office right now who's like, I love skin. Like it's sort of a random character, right? Yeah. But with Sync getting the push that he's getting now and with the prominence that Monet has in the franchise now, I think it would be weirder if we don't see Gen X popping up here and there. So yeah, I bet he'll I be like, like around. You know, the characters that were, for me, not popular, but like the characters that I was familiar with when I was a teenager were the X-Men Generation X because I didn't really read New Mutants or whatever, you know, back then. But I feel like those are characters that now adults that are writing comics you know potentially like would want to use because if i like you know if i were writing anything x-men i'd be like can we use skin a little bit mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what i mean so it makes me makes me curious but who knows yeah i think that makes a lot of sense well, i think now is a good time to get into the listener questions Let's thank you it. to everybody who wrote in Matilda Negra writes, Hi, Connor and Terry. I haven't read much of Skin, but what I have is delightful. What Krakoa Eric team would you most like to see Skin on? Since the line will shake up soon, feel free to speculate. I'd like to see him on Excalibur. When Gen X got transported to the Cassidy Keep Leprechaun dimension, he made some valiant efforts towards slaying a dragon. I think he would do well in Otherworld. His dynamic with Jubilee back in the day was great, and I'd like to see that revisited. Plus, he and Richter would have a lot to talk about. It's not super common to see two characters with the same ethnicity and fairly different backgrounds on the same team. Would skin skin become a D&D &D style cloak? Yours by the grace of the Ascani mother, Teal. P.S. Check out this panel of Angela and Jubilee forming a mutant circuit to light a bigot's ass on fire. That is, in fact, something that they did at one point in Gen X. Whoa. Skin pulls his pants back a little bit and Jubilee drops a firework in his trousers. That's which awesome. Which is funny. 
Where would you like to see him if you like got a chance to put him somewhere on Krakoa? This person has thought about it quite a bit, <laughs> it sounds like. <laughs> and I honestly can't say that I feel too different. I think that if if we are to do something with him or put him on a team, it needs to be with characters who also have a connection to Generation X mm-hmm. so that we can explore who he is as a person too. So I, for one, want him to be paired up with like Jubilee. So if that means going to Excalibur, great. Just because I do want to see like, you know, what do you do with your life once you're brought back and your best friend is now dating the girl that you were in love with and you, Mm -hmm. you know. So I think that that would be a really good place for him. I don't see him on like (laughs) X-Men, I guess. I just don't see that happening. Well, he never wanted that. And I don't think that it's where, he he doesn't really want to be a superhero. That never really was where his interests were. What about you? You know, for me, it's a little bit like, Husk, where I think Husk would be happy on the X-Men team, but I also think that Husk makes a lot of sense where she was put in the Strange NX. Well, actually, by the end of Aaron Wolverine and the X-Men, I didn't love her whole arc there, but by the end of it, she's in this guidance counselor position. In Strange Gen X, she is doing therapy sessions with Bling and other stuff. And I feel like similarly, he could definitely take on like a mentorship role. Like, I feel like he would be very good the way that he was good with Artie and Leech. He would be very good as like a big brother, big sister type of mentor to like younger mutants. And so again, like, I don't know if that means he's a major character in a book, but I feel like he could be around and then he could be someone who characters like Sink and Jubilee and Monet and Chamber, if Chamber winds up somewhere. Because I feel like every now and then someone like decides to push Chamber because he he has like a, you know, people love that character. He's so distinctive looking, which helps in like a sort of beautiful way to draw, right? Yeah. Someone who those characters could consult with or talk to or could like be their friend, but isn't necessarily on the team. That's, I think, more where I see this character now because his he never was trying to be Super a superhero. Yeah. And now he's in this land of Krakoa where he doesn't need to be defending himself all the time. And so I think what would be nice for him would be to lead a more normal life and to help other people. That's a good answer. I think like, yeah, have him mentor some of the new mutants or something. Yeah, exactly. Like the literally new mutants, not the team, the new mutants. I got what you meant. I'm just clarifying because it's an audio medium and I (laughs) know what you meant, but I'm just clarifying because you can't tell from us talking that it's not capitalized. Joe Keltner writes, hey, Connor and Terry, hey. So so Skin's powers are a stretchy extra six feet of skin, but his skeleton and internal organs don't change? That's correct, as far as I know. I know he had a hard time controlling his abilities in Gen X. It gave him migraines. But by the end of that book, he had enough control to no longer look like a sad, melting bulldog. Or, you know, maybe it was just the artist's prerogative. My question, had he not been brutally murdered, where do you think his powers would be now? With the boost some mutants get after being resurrected, what do you think his powers could be? A lot of mutant abilities seem to really only be limited by the imagination, and skin seems to be no different. He could almost reach Adventure Time's Jake the Dog levels of stretchy, shape-shifting insanity. I think like Husk, he's better when you lean into the gross weirdness of his power. Also, no doubt you'll cover her, but Torres? What's up with her now? She and Emma had some history that's never been explained. Has she ever shown up again? When is she coming to Krakoa? Thanks, love the pod, Joe. I forgot that it's implied that like maybe Torres and Emma have met before. Torres has only appeared seven times. They were all in that brief run of Gen X. She has not been seen since. If Skin is up to something, it would be cool to bring that character around. And again, it would be cool to have more Latina mutants in general. So why not bring her back? But I do think 
because Skin is already kind of a secondary character, that a character whose only connection really is to him is not a character that we're likely to see anytime too soon. That said, I have been saying I would like to see more diaspora mutants who have elected not to emigrate to Krakoa. And I think that Torres is very much enmeshed in her world in Los Angeles and wouldn't necessarily want to leave it. So that could be an interesting way to have that character come back is as someone who's skeptical of the Krakoan experiment, let's say, and who has decided to stay in the world that she's familiar with, in the world that she calls home. Is Skin trying to, like, persuade her to come to Krakoa? Right, like, that could be a story. Like, he's like, we could finally be together and be happy. And she's like, um... I am happy, thanks. Yeah, I'd like to be here. You could come here. He gets no love (laughs) from anyone. Yeah, I mean, and I think that that tension is part of what's interesting about the character. Is like he feels very rejected by the people around him. But for the rejection to be not... I'm not attracted to you anymore because you're a weird skin guy. And instead to be, I don't want to go to Krakoa. I belong here in LA. I think that would be an interesting way to take it. Yeah. I mean, the way that he's drawn now or the way that he's been drawn in those two panels. He's not like, not, he's not, not melting that weird looking anymore. It's yeah. More like his fingers and you know, are just are like, like long. Yeah. And creepy, and so yeah. I think, you know, his face is like super tight. <laughs> yeah. No, he's mastered that clearly. That's all he wanted was to get his, was to snap his face back together. And I thought he looked so cool. So you know, as opposed to having Torres or Jubilee who are like, no thanks, I'm good. Like, what w- I wonder what it would do to him to like have... have to give girl, him a real like, love interest yeah. who likes him, yeah. Like, what does that do to someone when like, someone who's felt ugly their whole life finds someone that's like, I'm into you. I love, I think you're great. Now that Chamber and Husk are like definitively not a thing anymore and haven't been for a long time, I actually wouldn't hate if they went back to the husk and skin dynamic that I thought was interesting back in Gen X and maybe have them go out. That's cute. She understands where he's coming from in some respects, like in terms of their power. Yeah. And they always did. Like the city mouse, country mouse thing was cute and they could call each other that now again, but like be dating. I think that would be cute. I like that. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. As for like where his powers would be, I do think that because his skeleton and his organs don't shift, like his shape shifting is limited, but I think that he should lean into like the whips and weapons type thing. Like, you know, making ropes and creepy stuff with his long skin fingers is a cool idea. But like, I don't think his bones extend, but his finger skin extends. So like, again, it's like a somewhat limited application. Still, like there are fun things you could do, I'm sure. I bet he could like turn into a parachute. Right, or he could like, yeah, make his... Like a flying squirrel. He could fly. Link his fingers together and create a parachute like that. Yeah, yeah. I See, I like the idea of creating stuff with skin. I, I wonder if like, there's an idea where you can do something that like just as as opposed to him just being able to stretch you know a bit of extra skin like can he do other things with his skin do we get into that or does that change his character you know like can he harden his skin can he you know mm-hmm. does that, you know so who knows i think if you wanted to use him in a team you would have to expand the power set a little bit because right now it's not that combat useful but i think it would be very easy especially since we know from the same medical reports on sync that cecilia reyes drew up that resurrection often boosts a mutant's power yeah because they're in a fresh body with full new genetic potential well i mean how many mutants have secondary mutation like the secondary mutation concept itself has kind of gone away but mutant powers evolving is certainly something we still see a lot of right i love the idea though that like you know Emma has her powers, but then she can turn diamond. And I feel similarly about Monet, like where 
you know, she has her powers, but she can turn into this other form. The penance form is such a, that's such a cool idea for I, Hickman. It's, I love it so That much. is so cool. And I thought particularly, I loved it in the X-Corp issue number three that Valentine Delandro drew where Sarah St. John like fucks with her. And then we see the security camera footage and it's just like Monet is like sort of got her head down because she's been shocked or whatever. And then she transforms and comes up as penance. It's like, you just made a huge fucking mistake. Take a, take a, <laughs> take a note and please send that to me because I don't remember that panel and I want to see it. Oh, it's good i'll send it to you yeah, it's funny it. it made me laugh delandro is such a he's so good at layouts yeah so i think you'd need to do give him some sort of secondary mutation in regards to his skin yeah i think that hardening it would make sense and like that is how penance's power was described what about the opposite is that like his second maybe his secondary mutation is the opposite that like instead of stretching that skin and having it be so like thin and melty that he can like it can go inward and thicken and, it and yeah. thicken and super harden and then that would be that would be a combat ready kind of thing it would be a natural outgrowth that would make sense like he could be like a bullet going through someone you know yeah fastball special me baby like i'm hard as steel now yeah i think that that would be a smart way to go because then he could just be in the mix because right now i think that he's a character who's a little too physically vulnerable yeah. to always be, you know, practical on a, a next machine or like on the Marauders or whatever. And then a third mutation is that he can stretch and then harden the stretchness. Sure. Like, and make a club. Yeah. yeah. Like there are lots of ways you could develop this power. I yeah. think that would make it more combat ready. Sam Guido writes, Dear Connor and guest, I don't know much about skin, but like his teammate Husk, he has a very gross skin-related power. Another Gen X teammate, Chamber, has a power that's disturbing in a different way as he permanently blew up the lower half of his face. Was there a push in the 90s for there to be more visible or gross mutations? Or was this specific to Gen X? If it was specific to this book, why do you think that is? Love the Discord and the podcast. I really enjoyed learning more about Everett, Monet, and Paige in their episodes, and I'm looking forward to Angelo's Sam Guido. That's a very good question. It's a great question. I don't think it's specific to Gen X. I do think that in the 90s in general, there were a lot more like quote unquote gross mutants because I think that was part of the tone of superhero comics in the 90s was like, how far can we like push this? Sort of like the popularity of Venom, like that kind of thing where it was like more extreme, like Spawn, that kind of stuff. But Shala was known for work at places like Vertigo, where it was a little more avant-garde. So I think there was this idea, like, let him go wild with these character designs. That's what I was going to say. That's what I think most of it probably was. If you think about it, like, it's not necessarily Gen X specific because the X-Men that get added in the 90s, like, Marrow also has a body horror power. I mean, she is a villain in Gen X early in her publication history. And Maggot obviously has like a gross power that's body hard in the same way. Like his digestive system turns into these like robo slugs, like ew, you know? (laughs) So I think that that was just something that you saw more of kind of across the board. But with Gen X, I think it's because A, there's like, you've got Bachalo and it's like, let him go a little wild. But B, I think that as a puberty metaphor, like if you're doing the book about the student class, it's often like, what is this generation's thing, right? In the 80s in New Mutants, I think it was more about fitting in. And in the 90s in Gen X, it was more about, I referred to it, I think of the Monet episode as like hot topic New Mutants. Like it's much more, you know. Like I can't fit in. I don't know how. Right. And so you don't understand me. And so I, I won't even, like I'm, Absolutely. you know. It's a, that, that, that's a lot of like goth energy. <laughs> It's very goth energy, and I think that the characters set themselves apart. I mean, it's very stark in the Ferber run when you have all of these, like, quote-unquote, normal teens come to the school, 
and people like Chamber and Skin have to lie about who they are. Yeah. Like they're not even like Angel back in the 60s where he like had a harness that could hide his wings, right? Which never really made sense, but we just accept it. Like they can't hide. They would have to use like an image inducer or something and they don't. I think that that is part of it. It accelerates the you're a misfit teenager element of the metaphor. I similarly think that, you know, I'm not super fond of the New Mutants run that precedes Academy X. That was not my era generally. But I do think that what makes the Kyle and Yost run on that book really work is that it feels to me like what they decided was what defines this generation. And that was an I actual generation. Like I'm a teenager in the early 21st century. You know, what defined us, I was 13 for 9-11. And sort of what defined our generation was like trauma, especially yeah. in like the New York area where these books take place. So what Kyos do is they have all of these really traumatic cataclysmic events happen to these kids. Lots of people they love die. It's like that's sort of the tone of the book. And I think that in the 90s, you know, it's like, it smells like teen spirit. It's that sort of like emerging scene kid thing, goths and emos and post-punks and all of that. My parents just don't understand. Like that's very very much much the nineties vibe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that's why is that it literalizes that aspect of the teen experience in the nineties that was sort of zeitgeisty. But it's very expensive to portray in a live action television film. (laughs) Which is why they had to make up two new characters because they couldn't do Husk and Chamber, Buff and Refrax. Someday someone will bring those characters to the 616, I do believe. Can you imagine? Listen, anything can happen, especially on Krakoa. Yep. Harini Marchati writes, hello, Connor and guest. Before I ask my question, I just have to say I have nothing against Skin and don't mean to insult him by bringing up this question. With that said, when you first called for questions about Skin, I was a bit bewildered because I had absolutely no idea who he was or what his deal was. This made me think about how many X characters fit this description. There are literally hundreds of X-Men students at this point, and only a small fraction of them have ever achieved mainstay status in the books. How do you think the books can resolve this going forward? Are some characters just cursed to forever be obscure? Is it even worth it to introduce new mutants at this point? Point. Again, I want to stress that I'm not a skin hater. Just found this episode in particular to be a good jumping off point for this general discussion since, from what I can understand, skin is the Gen X kid who has had the least to do in recent times. Thanks, Harini. I mean, this is what we were talking about earlier with, mm-hmm. with Steve Orlando. I think that if you have a character that is not very popular or a B character or whatever, the only way, not the only way, I think the best way to get people to like this character is to give them good storyline in a book that has other popular characters in it if skin was given a series people might not go pick it up because they're like well i don't know this character i don't know who this is i don't really care you know but suddenly you put him in a book with jubilee people are going to buy it they're going to read it they're going to find out what's going on here they're going to you know yeah and that was the whole premise of gen x right was like let's put jubilee in here to anchor this because she's popular exactly because of the cartoon you Mm -hmm. know yeah so i think that's one way to do it it's sort of similar to when not to take it here already, but when I was approached about writing Reptile, I was like, I've never heard of this. I've never heard of this character. Right. I, was like, I don't know. I don't know who this is. And then I thought, if I'm Mexican American like him, and I was such a dinosaur nerd as a kid, why have I not heard of this character? Right. Because you'd think you would have. And he should be the most popular character in Marvel for kids. Because how many kids love dinosaurs? How many kids want to turn into a fucking dinosaur? So I was like, this is a good opportunity then for representation. He's a brand that could become big is exactly. the thing. So, you know, you try to give him 
a good storyline and some good characters to go in there and give this a bit of, you know, a little bit of life to it so that people can get to know these characters. But yeah, I would definitely pair him with like a Jubilee or with Husk or someone. I don't know. A lot of characters in the Krakoa era in particular have become more beloved literally by doing that. On all of these teams, you have one or two characters who are pretty obscure who have now become really loved in the fandom. I mean, the Hellions, the fact that people care about Nanny and the Orphan Maker now or about John Greycrow is wild. And that book was anchored by fans love to read Mr. Sinister Be Funny. Fans love the 90s Psylocke, who we've now made her own character. And fans will at least know who Havoc is, right? Like, that's the selling points of that book. Over the course of the book, you start to get invested in all of these really C-tier villains who are now really important characters to a lot of people who care about them. I think that the X Factor team that Leah wrote, almost none of those characters are what I would call A-list X-Men characters. Like Polaris is probably as close as I would go. Northstar is well known because he was the first gay superhero, but he's never been, I don't think, an enormously popular like character in his own right, you know? Yeah. And Rachel is just so confusing that a lot of people, if they haven't read the like 80s and early 90s stuff, are like, who is this? <laughs> a lot of the yeah. time, right? Those characters, and then Polaris, who is a really recognizable character, Prodigy, who had gotten a lot of new fans because of Young Avengers, being on that team and having his powers back was like a hook. But it allowed characters like Aurora to become someone that casual fans now care more about in a yeah. way that they didn't before. As a huge classic Excalibur fan, I love that because the Excalibur title stars Betsy, a lot of new fans have now gotten to know Brian and Megan, who are characters that I really love, who haven't been used a ton since the original Excalibur book ended, honestly. Because they're involved in the story, yeah. Right. Now, through the lens of, like, this is Betsy's family, more readers are getting to know them. And I think that's great. And, like, Jamie Braddock in particular, who's, again, a very C-tier X-Men villain, has been a real breakout fun character in this era, who now has a lot of fans. And Tina gave him a great code name, Monarch. Oh, yeah. Like a butterfly, which I think is great. That's great. Oh, it's Betsy's evil older brother, who's just hilarious. <laughs> That's really fun when those characters... So I think that that's exactly what it is, is Skin needs someone who loved Gen X when they were young, who looks around and sees, okay, Jubilee and Monet and Sink are being used in whatever title. What are Chamber and Husk up to? Okay, they're in space in this unlimited plot. So Skin's not doing anything and decides to throw him in there. You know what I mean? Like, I think that that is what it'll take. And I don't think that that's out of the question because at this point, anyone writing an X-Men comic grew up reading, or if not reading, because not everybody grows up reading comic books, but everybody grew up aware of these characters, right? Like, so it'll just take someone who, like Terry, picked up Gen X when they were young and maybe felt seen. I'd love to see Vita Ayala take a crack at him. I mean, I know I say that about a million different characters because I would love to read Vita write just about anybody. But if the New Mutants cast revolves again at any point, he'd be an interesting person to loop in, I think. Yeah, I agree. Chuck Marsh writes, hello, Connor and guest. Hope this gets in under the wire for this episode. Angela represents the ultimate failure of the Xavier system and is quite damning on both Xavier and Emma. Unlike the rest of Gen X, there wasn't really much hope for him to be trained up to be an X-Man of tomorrow. Even just power-wise, he'd only really function at the street hero level with Colleen and Misty rather than the giant robots and space stuff the X-Men usually run into. Then you have where we found him in his one appearance where he was working a low-paying fast food job after apparently getting a prestigious education from one of the world's richest women. Which seems unthinkable until you remember Kitty's credits didn't transfer in London in Excalibur. 
As Kendra brought up on the Sync episode, there's room to argue simply escaping gang life as a Mexican-American man was the jackpot break where he got a reset on his life without a trip through the criminal justice system. But I doubt any writer at the time was thinking that. Was there really no plan for what comes next for mutants who can't go into superheroics? I know the second Gen X volume dealt with that idea of not every mutant is going to be a superhero or a mutant ambassador, so what do you teach them? But it seems crazy there wasn't some plan in place from Xavier or Emma. He also stands out on something I've seen brought up that Xavier tended to pre-Morrison stack his student body with powerful mutants or well-connected ones. The O5 Second Genesis team and New Mutants all mostly were good with people and could be molded into soldiers or influencers who'd be able to accomplish his goals, while mutants that couldn't, like Tommy the Morlock, were left alone. Skin is the exception, but seems to make the problem stand out even more by being there. Can't wait for the app and all of the episodes announced for season two. Chuck Marsh. I don't know what the question was. (laughs) What do we think it means that Charles and Emma didn't seem to have an infrastructure in place? And I guess what I would say is like, the simple answer is this is about the story. This is about the fact that the book got canceled. Yeah. But it's also, I will say, to defend Emma a little bit here. At the end of Gen X, all of these kids very specifically break ties with her because she murdered Adrienne. And they don't trust her anymore because she lied to them about it. So I think that even if Emma had wanted to create more of an infrastructure for him, at this point, they've cut her off. Yeah. And considering he wasn't someone who wanted to be an X-Men anyway. Right. He wanted to go back to L.A. and live a normal life. That's what he had always wanted. But I do think that, you know, if his character is to go forward, I think I'm on the team of just make him a superhero, just like give him a secondary mutation and like make him someone that, you know, has a fun story and that character or people can relate to or, yeah, I just, because to have him be someone who's just kind of there, like, what's the point? Like, that's a character you could do stuff with. So, I mean, I guess he does represent a failure in that way. I I think the, the question that they're also asking is like, what was Emma's what was Emma and Banshee's like idea for him? Right. Where were they going to take him? What did they think he was going to do after his graduation ceremony? (laughs) Exactly. Last question. And I'm sorry because people sent in a bunch and it's not that I don't want to read. It's that Terry has a hard stop and this can't be a five hour extravagans, (laughs) which is extremely fair. I, I don't expect any guests to go that much further. And we've been recording for almost three hours. So I will ask a final question. Pame Bravo writes, Hi, Connor and Terry. I've been doing a Gen X reread for this episode because as a Mexican woman, Angela is one of my favorite Latina characters. So sorry if this is long. Something I've noticed about Angela is how his powers make him have a physical mutation like Chamber. They even bond over it. But in contrast to him, he never really shines that much. His powers never really make you go, wow, this guy's a powerhouse. And he's not a leader type in a team of leaders, which is something Jubilee points out. She says, between M, Sink, and Huss, we've got a team of leaders. And it's true. Angelo doesn't even want to become an X-Man or a superhero. He only wants to learn to control his powers, as he tells Paige when she talks about wanting to join the X-Men. There's a moment in Gen X 56 where they're trapped in a fake reality where they're the Hellions, and they think Monet is dead. He's the one who says, we're kids. We shouldn't be put into these kinds of situations. And he mentions that they're the ones who end up dead while trying to make a difference in a world that hates them. It made me say, tell them, Skin, because knowing how he dies later makes all of this harder to read. It's really tragic because Skin grew up in a dangerous neighborhood. He didn't have a chance to be a kid. And then he went to Xavier's just to train his powers and maybe try to find a place where he could exist at peace. As he mentions when helping Jono, we're mutants, which means we stick together, not like in the place where he grew up. With Gen X, he found a community. He found friends. And even if he plays the tuppet first, like when they built the treehouse for Artie and Leech, he starts to actually enjoy being a teenager with all of them, just for him to end up killed after the book ends. 
It breaks my heart. He deserves better because even if he was never the center of attention, he was an important part of Gen X. He's friends with everyone. He's perceptive. He's brave and his heart is in the right place. So I'm waiting for his moment to come in this new Krakoan era. Ev is already getting such a big push, so maybe he could too. But honestly, I don't know where Angelo could fit. I feel like he's just chilling on Krakoa. What do you think? What do you think he thinks of the island? I'm still waiting for a Jubilee and Angelo reunion and his reunion with Jono. Sorry for the long rant again. Love the podcast. Keep up the good work. I figured this was a good place to end because it's also someone who yeah. really felt seen by the character. And while we've covered some of this already, I think it's a good way to like finalize our thoughts on like where do you take this character in the future if it's not as a superhero, you know? Yeah, I, you know, it was just mentioned here that they want to see this reunion with Jubilee and, and whatnot. And that's also something that I really want, but they also mentioned, you know, him being like a good, brave person, but without this power set, that's really flashy, I suppose. And they also wanted to know what, you know, he think what we think he thinks of the Island. Personally, I think that he is someone who is on the idea of like, why should we try for this, equality with people who don't care who don't care about us so i do think that he probably loves the idea of the island yeah i think he's somebody that is really into you know like the examples that this listener gave the idea that like we're kids we shouldn't be put in this situation why should we defend a world that doesn't care about us that wants to hurt us and then he ends up dead so I think that he is probably somebody who, like you and I discussed, would be good to like pair with Torres again is like, no, you should come to the island. Why do you want to be in this world that doesn't want you? Somewhere that you don't have a support system. Yeah. yeah. So that's what I think he thinks. I, You know, maybe on some level, it doesn't bother him that he was just brought back for this like therapy reason. To be like, yeah, sinks therapy dog. Right. <laughs> he might be just be like, well, I'm back, whatever. You know, listen, well, I actually think that would be his attitude, because if you remember, if we go back to the conversation with Glorian, Skin's whole deal is like, my life is what it is, you know? And so if he's told we brought you back because Everett needed a friend and we needed Everett's power. First of all, I don't think they told them that. You know what I mean? Like, I I think that he just came back and Emma was like, you came up in the queue, darling. So good to see you. you I don't think they said this is why we're doing it. Those were from private notes that we got to read as a data page. But I think that if he did know, and that was something they knew, that he would be like, yeah, that tracks. Everett has a really useful power. I am, you know, not as useful. Glad to be back, and I'm going to make the best of it. Because that's kind of the attitude he always has, is like, let's make the best of what we've got. I don't think he's giving us, like, depressing levels of season six Buffy, why am I back, why am I here? Right, I just don't see that. No, I think he's he's been shown as, like, a happy kind of... The, the two panels that we've seen him in on Krakoa, he's happy. He seems he's to like, be like thriving. Yeah, yeah so. exactly. So yeah. live, laugh, love on Krakoa. Love that for him. Yeah. You know what, actually, you know where I would, you know what I think they should do with him if they're not going to put him on a team anywhere? He would be a great bartender at the Green Lagoon. Like just have him be around, you know, like it's Blob's uh, but, uh, Bar. Anoli is <laughs> the bartender right now. <laughs> And I love him. Do you want him working 80-hour shifts? I don't think that that's... Well, that's what I mean. Fine, then he a... could be another bartender. That's what I mean. I'm oh, saying, cool. like, they should have a staff there. There should be a couple characters that you throw in there. Now I want, like, a Cheers-style sitcom of well, I would The Green love Lagoon. that. <laughs> Just like an anthology book called Green Lagoon. Do it. Make it a romance. I love song. it so much that that's what I wrote in the Marvel Voices Pride issue. Is a yeah, you did. With, with Anoli, <laughs> Gray Malkin, like, you know, working at the bar, hanging out, talking. Yeah. 
having a dance with Dak and yeah I can see skin working there that's yeah. yeah I mean that's what I'm saying like I think there are characters like this who are personable but who aren't really people who want to be superheroes and you could put them even if it's not the Green Lagoon give us other locations on Krakoa there are presumably other businesses other social places like you could do stuff yeah where's like the coffee <laughs> the yeah coffee like shop there must Krakoa. be a coffee shop you yeah. know what I mean like and you know Krakoa <laughs> makes a mean coffee bean yeah it's like weird it's probably the best coffee in the world <laughs> or it's like just a little wrong i could see that also but like everybody's like it's fine it's like you know that's it just, tastes a that's little just, different yeah. but that's just that's the, the price that's a, the price you pay for is the shitty for coffee. It being free <laughs> <laughs> you know yep well terry i'd love to give you a chance to talk about upcoming work you have or recent work that you would like to talk about the reason we timed this episode for right around now is that next month Marvel's Voices Comunidades is coming out and you have a story in that about Reptile's cousin? I do. Yeah, his cousin, Ava, Ava, well, Ava, again, names. Uh, Eva, Eva, whatever you want to say, Eva. Eva, Eva, I say Eva and sometimes Ava. Again, I think she would say it differently when talking to people, right? She's a magic user, as you can, you know, see in Reptile and on the cover of Mm -hmm. Comunidades. But I wrote a short story for her where she goes to Strange Academy. Fun. Yeah, and so that's pretty much all I can say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it would like pre-order that if you haven't already. Definitely check it out. And then also the Reptile Trade will be coming out that same month. And so that's four issues right there that you could read her first appearance, her whole story. You can read a fun story with dinosaurs in it. Well, and if you listen to this podcast, you always are down for a little dinosaur magic, I think. Absolutely. And then I also have a book. Well, I have two books coming out in November. One about Cesar Chavez. So this is all in November. Yes, uh, because of the global <laughs> shipping delays that were supposed to come out in October. But, yeah, no, of course. That, right? That's what I'm saying is it's like, all in November. listen, I work in trade publishing day to day. You don't have to tell me. It's yeah. a printing crisis right now. If anybody's listening and doesn't understand why books, comics, and things keep getting delayed, it's because COVID has created an international printing crisis that is really bad. Yeah. So like... So that's why yeah. <laughs> nobody's Things are coming as fast as they can come. Yeah. It's that like... People literally, there's the supply chains are all fucked up and we don't have enough paper, like, you know, right. stuff like that. Yeah. So that book is called Who Was the Voice of the People? Cesar Chavez. Um, that comes out in November. And then I have another. Is that graphic? Yeah. It's a graphic novel. Yeah. Nice. And then I have another graphic novel that I wrote with art by Claudia Aguirre, who did the art for Hotel Dare. Mm-hmm. And that book is called Lifetime Passes. And it's from Shirley Books, which is Mariko Tamaki's new queer imprint with Abrams. Yeah. And it's about some teenagers and a theme park. And I um, really don't want to say much more because I think it's an interesting, weird premise that um, you should check out. Well, so you should pre-order those also, listeners, if you're interested, because pre-orders are very, very helpful to authors, especially in trade publishing, like a book that comes out of an imprint like that at Abrams. First week sales are an important thing, and pre-orders count for first week sales. So as I always say when I have an author on the podcast, buy that book now in advance. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. Terry, why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you online and see more of your work? I'm very easy to find. So my website is terryblast.com and my Instagram, Twitter, social media, all that is just Terry Blast. My name, T-E-R-R-Y-B-L-A-S. Can't get simpler than that. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at DreamOfOrganon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes plus links to the merch store and the Patreon and the Discord server at CerebroCast.com, the official landing page for the podcast. You can send your questions to CerebroCast at gmail.com. 
right now I am still taking questions for the magic episode with Leah Williams. Ooh. I know. And I will have some other guests and characters to announce soon. So stay tuned on Twitter for that or in the Discord server. I'm excited about what's to come. One thing I do want to say about the email account, I'm going to go through and try to reply to some things that I have missed. It's been a busy, crazy couple of months. But going forward, starting in probably the end of October-ish, I am going to have some people who are processing that account for me, like some friends who volunteered. It's actually the mod team in the Discord who are angels because it's getting to be a volume where it's hard to keep it organized and where I feel bad if I don't respond to every single email. And so there's going to be like a middleman here. So I'm just letting you know, if you get a response that is from Sage, that's one of the people who is taking care of the email account. So thank you to them for doing that. But please continue to write in. I love reading all of the responses and I will still be reading things. I just can't stay on top of it day to day right now because I already have like a very busy inbox at work. So I needed some help. Until next time, everybody, thank you so much for listening. The response to season two so far has been really incredible. And I love doing this show. I love interacting with all of you. I can't wait to do more. I've got a lot of really exciting stuff coming up for the rest of this year. And I'm scheduled now, like, halfway through 2022, wow. So, I mean, like, things, people drop in. Like, if I get a creator interview, I move the schedule around and stuff. But otherwise, like, I think we're good through next June or something. It's crazy. <laughs> so... I'm excited to tell you all what's coming. And until then, thank you so much for listening. And bye. Bye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is X-Men.